What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the Run Your Mouth podcast. We have Gene Epstein back again. Uh, just one month later, I, I listened to the audiobook of the book of his recommendation, and now we're going to do the Run Your Mouth book review with Gene Epstein, who's going to tell us some of the greatness and some of the flaws of uh, Thomas Sawell's uh, book. Um, I've already forgot the title of the book. That's how prepared I came for this interview. Good yeah, to you go. Know, you could, Basic as you, economics. As you told me, it's good. As, as you told me, Rob, when you run your mouth on the Run Your Mouth podcast, it doesn't matter. You can get things wrong. Uh, you finally got the title. It's called Basic Economics, which is not exactly the sexiest of titles, but uh, it's a great book, uh, and uh, I would even say, so to speak, a sexy book. Uh, and uh, you just mispronounced his last name. Uh, it, uh, you know, they, they uh, it is soul, you know, and of course the left wing jokingly, I mean, sort of uh, satirically wrote about him as of course a renegade African-American and they called him soul brother. You know, he's not a soul nice. brother, he's a soul brother. And uh, so that they've used that against him. It's Thomas Sowell and he's actually 90 years old this year. Um, he published uh, this book, I think in his first edition about 15 years ago and it truly was the fruit of many years of learning. You and I listened. I listened again uh, on uh, on uh, on um, uh, the uh, Audible to uh, the fifth edition of the book, just as you did. And uh, what would you say about? Uh, let me interview you, Rob, because you came to it fresh. Uh, what would you say about the greatness of the book? How would you put it in your in your uh, way? In your uh, Robbie the Fire way? It's a fire so book. Yeah. Yeah, I would say uh, first is compared to the textbooks I had in college yeah. that approach these topics, this is a lot more approachable in that if you're not that interested in economics, he's not making you look at different charts, graphs, there's no math equations, and he really goes with all real, real world stories yeah. that show you the unintended consequences of, um, you know, basically politics the politics come in and they go hey we're gonna solve these problems for you and they got these feel-good slogans and he has a pretty uh s systematic approach here of taking each of those and telling you well these all sound nice on paper but here's the unintended consequences um so it's definitely a big and dense book but if you've never considered economics in any fashion whatsoever uh he breaks it down in a way that i think anyone could find it interesting and follow the story. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I, I, I wish you'd even, okay, you're giving it a kind of an A minus, a B plus, you know, like the, the same grade I gave you the other day when, <laughs> when, you, uh, when you summarized uh, something else, um, uh, which we won't go into. But uh, no, I, I would say, Rob, came those prompting you, I think it's a very lively book. Because again, he knows how to tell stories. Uh, they, these are good stories, and he's got a he's got an edge to him uh, as well. He puts things in a pithy fashion. Wouldn't you say? It, it, uh, you know, the, the term dismal science. Uh, my my, I'm going to point out um, a little later that Sowell does not even know the origins of the term dismal science. Why economics is called the dismal science? Some people. I uh, think that the term uh, dismal science, uh, uh, as Sowell apparently uh, thinks, that the term dismal science was applied to economics because it's got a, got a kind of a grim outlook on life. But uh, And others think that the term is called dismal science because it's such a dismal and boring subject to study. 
But I take it you would agree that a lot of economics books are pretty dry with those charts and, and formulae. They don't seem to be talking about real people. This really is talking about real people and institutions. So it's it's lively, isn't it? You, you'd agree with that, right? Yes, I would agree that uh, I would agree to that, and I would yeah. say. The other things that to me make economics uh, yeah. lively or get get me kind of juiced up is that one is there are these kernels of truth that yeah. I wouldn't have considered. And when you first hear about them, I get excited for them. I would say the first one that would fall into that category was um, when I took microeconomics and they were talking about uh, the importance of specialization that, you know, there might be a place in the tropics that can, you know, produce bananas cheaper for me. So it's not worth me over here to make my bananas when I can be a better lawyer. So I yeah. specialize in being a lawyer. I buy bananas from them and everybody wins. Yeah. And all of a sudden you got this path for, oh, wow, the whole world can be a better place if everyone just kind of gets along and trade with each other. And so to me, that, that that's kind of uh, the opposite of what you're calling it a dismal science where all of a sudden you can realize how we can collaborate, get along and make the world a better place. And those are the ideas that get me jazzed up. The, the other part of it where it becomes really lively is um, because I, I would say one of the things I love to do is hate on politics and the way that they're robbing us of our wealth. And economics does a great job of really showing you, hey, here's what they're doing wrong. There's no question about it. Yeah. They're lying to you. And so I like when you can get those really damning accusations against the government where you know, it, it, it's clear cut and dry. Here's what, well, here's the policy and here's how that's fucking you over. Well, that's right. Uh, well, okay, exactly. And you're talking about this book in particular. You, you didn't study economics in, in the five years it took you to get a BA, Rob? <laughs> you were on the so, five did you, that, did you take any courses in economics? Yes, no, I, I, have, I have a um, finance, I have a finance degree. Uh, um, where'd you go? I went to, uh, I did one year at Yeshiva University and then I was at Queens College. Oh, wow. Um, and my academic, if you looked at my transcript, it happens to be I did very well up until I got to the more advanced math classes that were, that were my doom. So um, when I got awesome. to like econometrics, that oh. was a disaster for me. Stats was a disaster for me. I don't really have a mind for that stuff, but when it comes to the like any uh, economics class that deals with theory or even the charts I can wrap my head around pretty well. When you start actually getting into the math of it, I get lost. Well, I, I, uh, I happen to think, uh, uh, going beyond soul, that, uh, that, that the use of math has generally led economics astray. Maybe we'll get, that, get into that a bit later. But I want to put a, a fine point on what uh, you just said. Uh, basic uh, economics by Thomas Sowell is certainly a libertarian's book. It's a it's 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 a consequentialist form of libertarianism. It doesn't talk about rights. It it sort of obviously uh, puts a toe in the zero aggression principle, as I prefer to call it, rather than the non-aggression principle. But of course, it's it's about consequences. It's uh, about the consequences of what government does to interfere with the free market. And in that sense, it is something that libertarians can greatly benefit from. And uh, and then, as you indicate, anybody who doesn't like uh, math, um, uh, who, who gets put off by math, uh, can read it with profit and find it quite lively. You'd agree with that. I'd also go uh, beyond that and say, as somebody who is steeped in the Austrians, 
I would call myself an Austrian economist. Uh, the book is Austrian in the sense that it depicts the market as a process, uh, a system of profit and loss that is always in flux. He, he tells great stories about companies that are on top that, 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 uh, that collapse uh, you know, several years later because of competition. Uh, he points out uh, that, uh, that profits uh, are, uh, are no more important than losses uh, to uh, the economic system. And that's very different from the kind of economics you encounter in microeconomics texts. They're constantly drawing those curves and they're harping over and over again on, uh, on equilibrium states, on stability, on the absurd idea that in a state of equilibrium, uh, or everybody has all the knowledge they need to run the market. Uh, I, he, uh, he goes into the point that knowledge is always dispersed and imperfect and always being discovered. So in that sense, it is an Austrian work, and uh, it goes very much against the grain of the kind of economics you had to struggle through, Rob, to get that finance degree that took <laughs> you five years to get, and, uh, and well, you've been putting it, it to it great It did nothing with either. <laughs> so it was not the, the, the most fruitful of my uh, endeavors of my human capital, but what are you going to do? Yeah, yeah. Well, look, you know, don't let school get in the way of your education, I try to say to young people. And I personally didn't let it get in my way for the most part. I didn't take an economics course in undergraduate school. And, and that was probably a good thing. And gave, probably gave me an advantage. But I, I want to, oh, I, yeah, I, I want to give a, a flavor of the book a uh, little bit, uh, because I, I do want to recommend it uh, to your listeners. Uh, certainly, it's a great listen, I think, and you obviously polished it off pretty quickly. I don't think there's not a single shower, not a single moment on the toilet, not a single moment when you were doing dishes that you weren't uh, listening to that book, I take it, because it's uh, it's quite a long term. It's about a, I also, well, I, I don't know if this is cheating or uh, a function of the way that my, the, the speed that my brain goes at, but I was listening to it in double speed. Wow. Which uh, allows you to get through it a lot quicker. Oh yeah, no, yeah. My son, my son does double speed on books uh, as well, and, and indeed on on podcasts. I guess uh, I know I don't know if you could do double speed on this podcast, uh, um, but I, I like to say to Mark Claire that anybody who does double speed on him, I don't know if you know how fast he talks, uh, and of course how fast you and I, you and David go, Dave Smith go at times on part of the problem. But double speed was probably a good idea, and because again, it's very simple and very pithy. Now he begins. He he puts things so clearly. Um, he he never talks down to you. Um, he begins by quoting Lionel Robbins, because this is a pithy statement that he keeps repeating, that economics is a study of the use of scarce resources which have alternative uses, that virtually all resources have alternative uses. And uh, if, uh, you know, if, if, if the use of Rob Bernstein as a laborer or the use of, uh, of cotton or the, or the use of wheat or the use of any of those resources did, uh, were specific and did not have alternative uses, then the world would be far simpler. But virtually any resource you can think of can be used for different things. And as he, he keeps repeating that phrase maybe about 50 times because it's so important and it really is that the cost of doing anything is in a way the, the opportunity cost, the cost of, of, uh, of not putting it to 
uh, alternative uses to which it could be put. And so I think that's important. This is what I love, and I keep and quoting. Go on, yes. Just to build off of that, because I think yeah. if, if someone has no idea as to why you would want to study that or why it's important, yeah. um, what that sets up the analysis of is who then decides how these resources should be used. Yeah. And so where he comes in and he starts telling you government intervenes or government makes, makes the decisions about where these resources should go, here's where you end up basically with market failures as a result of that, yeah. um, which then will lead, and I, I don't want to get too far uh-huh. ahead of it, but that just that prices are a signal and it's the best way to kind of establish the way that scarce resources should be consumed is around the fact that people have to actually make a sacrifice in order to acquire it. And so the hive mind of everyone negotiating around that will establish prices, which is the best way to establish the worth of something. Um, And on the same note, if government comes in and tries to beat that system in any way, such as rationing price levels, um, you know, public housing, or any of these other things, rent control, what you end up is government trying to come up with a better system for distributing distributing the resources and every single time you end up with an unintended consequences which basically gets in the way of growth or gets in gets in the way of the best possible distribution yes well that's going to segue into my first point about his very odd sin of omission but but I, uh, before i get into that i just want to quote an two other lines that I love from this book uh, that I've used many times. I, you know, and it wasn't until I read Soul that I, that I encountered the best way to, to, to define what scarce means. And, uh, and uh, he puts it in just the most simple, simplest fashion. It's got the genius of simplicity. What does scarce mean? It means that, I'm quoting from the book, it means that what everybody wants adds up to more than there is. And uh, and you know it's it uh, you know I I I spent years trying to explain scarcity to people and now I use that phrase all the time. I remember when I was debating Ben Burgess on socialism and trying to explain scarcity to people. I I, I didn't even bother to, to to acknowledge that I was quoting. So what does scarcity mean? Well, it means that what everybody wants adds up to more than there is. It's so obvious and intuitive, and that's soul's genius. Uh, one other quote. That I uh, that I like that I want to uh, 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 quote for the moment because uh, it's, uh, it it frustrates me that I was unable to explain to people um, why the idea that differential pay for women or differential pay for Jews or differential pay for you and me um, is necessarily an example of of, uh, of unjust discrimination and uh, this is the quote uh, Saul writes if For example, women were paid only 75% of what men of the same level of experience and performance were paid, then any employer could hire four women instead of three men for the same money and gain a decisive advantage in production costs over competing firms. Uh, and uh, that, in that way, I mean, Sowell puts so well something I learned a long time ago, actually principally from him before he published Basic Economics, although the idea originated with Gary, with an economist named Gary Becker, the idea that capitalism punishes bigotry. The idea that if, if, uh, if a Jew like, uh, like Rob Bernstein or a Jew like Gene Epstein are underpaid because of anti-Semitism, then it's profitable for capitalists to, to hire 
hire us because they can get uh, what? They can get uh, four Jews for the price of three Gentiles. You know, the point is that that uh, that the 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 economics of capitalism punishes bigotry. While I, I guess he doesn't put a fine point on this in the book. He, he mentioned it in other books. While government discrimination uh, uh, doesn't penalize anybody because the bureaucrats don't care. It doesn't cost them anything to discriminate. And so I think he puts this in, again, in vivid fashion because the arithmetic works out perfectly. You can hire four women for the price of three men. Uh, if that if that 75% gap really were discrimination, it's probably different levels of experience, different levels of, of, of performance. Because again, capitalism punishes bigotry. And then on that note, so I I think it's also important to to point out that when the New York Times or other people go, hey, we need the government to step in here because look, women are only making 75 cents to the dollar. If you have any idea, like you just said, understanding of economics, you would go, well, that can't be true because there's no way firms are not charitable. You're telling me that IBM tomorrow is going to pay a 25% male premium because they just rather have a man in a cubicle to a female. That's what you're telling me. And so obviously you're not giving me the whole story. And it's so you're not accounting for risk, dangerous jobs, the fact that women will leave careers because they're having children. And so you just start putting in any of these other factors and you find out that that's simply not true. Um, Or what you're pointing out here is look how well the free market works is that it will actually punish bigotry. And so you can't really afford to be, uh, you know, you can't afford to be a company that goes, hey, I'm only hiring men uh, because, well, firstly, you know, you're going to lack point of views. But as you said, if there really was a male premium, the market would get rid of it because a firm would come along, hire a bunch of women for less and have higher profits. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, because we, we always have to temper that. I, I, I think I completely agree with what you just said, but of course, we always have to temper it by saying that, that, it's, that, that it's extremely unlikely that, that this could be the case in a market economy. That's all. Extremely unlikely. No, we, we have to acknowledge that, 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 uh, that bigots, um, you, they, you, may hate, you may hate Jews so uh, assiduously that uh, you're willing to pay uh, the premium for Gentiles that you don't want, even though a Jew comes for a lower price, uh, you might uh, say, look, I can't stand them, and so I'm going to accept that. But, but again, as you, I, of course, we hasten to say that it's just so unlikely because you, if, you, if you have a bunch of anti-Semites, if you have a bunch of sexists who won't employ women, then, then that's just such a great profitable opportunity for those who, who either will swallow their sexism and their bigotry or for those who don't have it. So again, those bigots will probably be driven out of the market because it won't be viable for them. But again, well, we only, all we have to say really is that it's so unlikely that you ought to at least examine I'll, why it is that women uh, do not uh, get paid as much as men or why. Of course, the other extreme, the introductory ad absurdum, is that Asians and Jews get paid more than, uh, than non-Jews and non-Asians. And uh, that's a point that Sowell likes to make. And he points out that I guess you'd say that, that what, the, the market is bigoted against, uh, against Gentiles? You know, but obviously Jews get paid more because they just, like you and me, Rob, they have higher skills, more experience. And, there you uh, go. and, and that's true of Asians too. And, I'll say uh, something that yeah. even, you're throwing in the technical that it seems unlikely, meaning that there is a possibility for it. Remote possibility. We can't, right. we don't want to I, know. We, yeah. I would say though, even 
if that remote possibility existed, I, I work in sales. That's my job. I, yeah. I work in sales. You know what sales is? It's convincing people that there's value in getting paid for that. That in itself is a skill. So if somebody, like for example, if men have figured out how to convince employers that they're more valuable, that they should earn a 25% premium, yeah. then they've somehow figured out to do something that like another group of people, for example, women haven't done. Instead of complaining to the government that they should come in and fix it, you got to figure out how you can sell your skill set better that this guy's managed to capture a 25% premium off of nothing other than somehow, or if Jews are somehow getting represented as being worse employees, so then we got to figure out how to sell ourselves as being something different. So even in, even in your example of saying it could exist, I would still say it's not for government to come in and to correct. And even for people for their own, how to be more successful in life, it's not about complaining or saying someone should fix this. It's about figuring out what do I need to do so I can have what that person has. But that, that's, that's more personal philosophy. Well, well, actually, uh, Rob, uh, uh, you inspire me to make a, 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 an additional point, uh, which is that uh, when government comes in uh, with affirmative action, uh, then, uh, then you have the, the sort of problem that Clarence Thomas of the Supreme Court uh, confronted when he, was, when he graduated from law school. He was a brilliant student. He had very high grades. But because of affirmative action, uh, he when he when he uh, when he interviewed for jobs, he recognized that uh, that people discounted his achievements. They figured that because of affirmative action, because he was black, that uh, that that the schools had gone easy on him. Uh, and and so there's a there's a kind of a reverse discrimination. What happens is that if you give women, blacks, Puerto Ricans, others special treatment, if you force employers to give them special treatment, then then the really competent ones get penalized because then there's this just this general feeling that uh, the fact that they got as far, their resume is probably, probably warped by the fact that they had to get special treatment. And that made it difficult in Clarence Thomas's case for, to be recognized as the brilliant student he really was. And then on top of that, of course, if, if, uh, if there's affirmative action and it's possible to bring a lawsuit about discrimination because you're a woman or because you're a black because you're an Hispanic then employers fear you then uh, then then you give an advantage to to the white uh, middle-aged males because they can't sue you so uh, it creates uh, government intervention then creates discrimination uh, of this of that kind and I think unfortunately we're going to we see we've seen it for years we're going to see it more and more given the constant push now uh, to to promote people whether they have competence or not to higher positions to higher positions in the world because they are minorities that's a that's a fascinating unintended consequence I never yeah. thought of and yeah. to build off of that yeah. that also means that you potentially people will pay a premium for a white male in a given field because they'll assume theoretically because they'll assume that there's some risk to hiring the minority of the same position because they might have gotten ahead not on their own merits so for example yeah. if i'm hiring a lawyer and i'm making a decision between you know a black and white lawyer theoretically you might go hey i'll pay a little bit more for the white guy because i know that he got this on his own merits this black guy might have gotten not on his own merits and I want to make sure, so there's a little bit of a risk here. In other words, you've built a little bit of risk into the market of hiring minorities because they might have been pushed ahead, not off of skills, which is a fascinating unintended consequence. 
Well, yes, and 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 unfortunately, uh, you might be doing that, uh, and, and, and because, even though you're you're completely devoid of bigotry, you you can you, you the, the knowledge and information that you get from any employ any candidate uh, is is limited. I mean, I guess of course you could you could if you're only hiring one black person or one white, then maybe you could spend a lot of time talking to that person and 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 evaluating that person's knowledge and experience on your own. But if you're an employer who's going to employ let's say 50 to 100 people you don't have the time for that you can only deal with resumes you can only deal with performances in college you can only deal with those records and you might have to err in order to protect yourself as an employer you might have to err in the very direction that you're talking about Rob precisely because of that problem and uh, and that of course is the thing that bothers me the most about all of those who say that you do see uh, discrimination in the marketplace you do see discrimination among landlords and it never occurs to them that, that about why that might be happening that it might be be happening precisely because of affirmative action that's been around uh, with us for so many years uh, and so uh, that politically incorrect statement uh, is one you and I both agree with. Let's leave it at that for the moment. I want to get now uh, to the meat of the evening, uh, Rob, or the afternoon, uh, about souls, omissions, and commissions. Uh, and uh, I'm going to elaborate on them, hopefully, in a, in a fashion so that everybody can follow so, them and how they fit into the book. Before, yeah. um, so yeah. omissions or commissions, basically, you're coming in to tell us some of the things that he's missed here. Um, I, I think before we, we okay. do that, just to sing them a little more praise. Oh, okay, yeah. All maybe right. we can get into some of the, uh, um, and I think you might be able to outline this a little bit better yeah. for us, but some yeah. of the ways government's really getting in the way of economic growth. Um, so, I mean, he's got yeah. multiple chapters on it. I think one of the ones that even your layman who just reads the newspaper would be aware of, but that at certain tax rates, um, we're removing money from companies that otherwise would make investments. That gets in the way of growth. Yeah. But one of the big ones that he talks about is um, price controls. Like I thought yeah. one of the really good examples he had was when there was price controls on oil, when they finally got rid of that, then there was money to invest in basically going after new oil reserves. Mm. Over time, they figured out the technology for these oil reserves and then oil prices came down. And so if you start, I, I don't know if you had too many other really good examples there, but that was just basically government at one point created a price control, I guess, for um, what was it? The price that you could charge for oil, I believe. And so certain deposits weren't profitable. When that was removed, certain deposits became profitable and the technology got better. And so over time, there was more supply of oil. Prices just came down. Mm -hmm. Perfect example, government policy getting in the way of technical technology technological developments and growth. Um, I'm sure there's some other examples oh. that might come to mind for you, but I do think yeah. that that's one of the really great parts of the book is just showcasing government policy. It gets sold to the public because you know they're able to say, hey, we're bringing you rent control. We're gonna make sure rent's affordable. We're gonna make sure your oil doesn't cost you enough. But then the unintended consequences is that you're now no longer having the best distribution of resources and here's some of the consequences. So I, I'd be curious, okay. even if it's outside of the book, if you could just tell us sure, some sure. of the ways government's really getting in the way of growth. Well, well, well. Uh, two of my hobby horses, uh, which uh, is really uh, a combined, the combination of governments getting in the way of growth and also governments denying uh, 
uh, economic opportunities to people of limited means and limited skills. Uh, uh, one of them, uh, which Sol has written about copiously, and I, I, I think he, I'm, I'm to some degree, I'm going to maybe confuse it in my mind the fact that I've read all of Sol's other books. Uh, and uh, and that uh, and whether it's actually emphasized in, in basic economics, it certainly is mentioned. Zoning restrictions and 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 restrictions on the building of housing. Uh, in uh, and uh, he wrote in uh, in a book called The Housing Boom and Bust that uh, where uh, government is most involved. Those those parts of the U.S. where government is most involved in housing regulation. Uh, that's where you find uh, housing is least affordable. Where government is least involved, that's where you find housing is most affordable. And, uh, and that, of course, is mostly a place like New York, uh, San Francisco, uh, Portland, uh, where a government is most involved and where housing is least affordable. And, uh, I, uh, and then areas of uh, Texas, especially in the Midwest, where government is less involved and where housing is most affordable. And uh, zoning restrictions that you have in the, that you find in his hometown in Palo Alto, where he lives, uh, because he's a he, he's with the Hoover Institute. And then just and, uh, um, um, not that I have a lot of expertise on yeah. zoning laws, but I'd be curious if you could then tell us. So there must be some drain on the economy where yeah. if people have to live in New York, you must be basically giving over false profit to landowners, yeah. you know, with favorable zoning laws yeah. and the expense of which is everybody living in New York City would potentially have more money that they could be paying on other goods and services. Yeah. So I would think that um, saving money on your rent would lead to more general economic activity in New York as opposed to policies that are probably just favoring the landlords. Well, well, okay, that, that actually, that, okay, that's a related point, but, but most directly, uh, uh, more directly even than, than you've just said, Rob, it's that, uh, it's, that uh, it's difficult then for people of limited means to move to the high, produ high productivity cities. Uh, that that, uh, the, uh, that the, the migration has generally been to, to southern areas of the country, which aren't uh, basic, uh, aren't exactly exciting hubs of productivity. Uh, but uh, they can't move to areas like San Francisco, where, because we're talking like pre pre-COVID, things might change about what's happening in that area. But where the good jobs are, where, uh, where you can get paid well to do a semi-skilled job, to work in a restaurant, to do whatever, you're reluctant to move there because you find that half your paycheck goes down the drain. Actually, of course, partly in taxes. That's part of the story as well. But half your paycheck goes down the drain in rents. And so the allocation of labor resources is greatly hobbled by the by by the peculiar fact that because of government uh, policies it turns out that the high productivity areas where you could be producing more where you could be learning more or earning more uh, are are also those areas where government rules and regs uh, the bureaucracy of building all the all the approvals you have to go through all of it by the way very good for the inner circle of crony capitalists in real estate they like it because they've got the political connections in new york and the political connections in San Francisco to build. Landlords uh, like rent control. Landlords 
I should put a fine point on landlords who are not under the thumb of rent control. Uh, many of them, of course, are not under the thumb of rent control in New York or under the thumb of rent control in San Francisco or Boston. They like it because that means that uh, that that it limits the supply. So a lot of us like it. I, I say to us because my wife owns a building and I work with her on that building. My but I'm uh, but returning to the fine point I wanted to put on the idea of its hobbling growth. It's that uh, growth is uh, is uh, enabled by uh, the reallocation of labor resources to those areas of the country where the jobs are, where the high productivity jobs are, where they can most contribute. And that's where government policies in a very subtle uh, but very, very pervasive fashion have exacerbated uh, the, uh, the inequality of income in the country, have, have limited the opportunities for people of limited means and have in the process uh, hobbled growth. So that should be very high on our list of priorities when we talk to those progressives who are concerned uh, about, uh, about, about the, the more limited opportunities that people of limited means have in this country. A second uh, 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 limitation on growth uh, is also mentioned by Sowell, and that's the idiocy of restrictive licensure. That's so that more and more jobs uh, require a college degree, more and more jobs uh, require a, a year or two of schooling to become a manicurist, uh, to work in a, in a funeral parlor, uh, and that, of course, is the guild system, the, to become a plumber. I happen to know, uh, because a friend of mine uh, wanted to become a plumber in New York City, that getting a plumber's license is just virtually impossible. You have to spend a lot of money and, and they can reject your application on the, on the basis of just the most trivial problem. So it's almost impossible to, to go up against the plumber's mafia in New York City and become a plumber. And so, and that's a perfect job for somebody who, who hasn't finished high school. You know, train yourself to become a plumber. And so all of those, so many of those jobs are, are, uh, are denied people because part of my hobby horse is that there's no reason reason why somebody who didn't finish high school couldn't become a divorce and a real estate lawyer. If you ever got involved with the law or hired a lawyer, you, it's obvious enough that if you work a year with a law firm, you can apprentice yourself, figure out the law, and, and, uh, and arrange divorces for your, for your friends and relatives. A poor woman in the ghetto could, could, could become a lawyer. And, and that actually gets into uh, uh, one, of the, uh, uh, one of the sins of commission in Sowell's book. I'm anticipating. Seoul very articulately inveighs against restrictive licensure. And again, that's a great example of government. Gov only go government has to back that, has to back that restrictive licensure. That's where government plays a role because, because, you can't, because otherwise you can't legally prevent people from entering the profession. You have a perfect right if, you, if, you're, a, if you're a plumber's union to say, well, we, we certify our plumbers as really great. Well, that's fine. Certification is fine. And that's important. We, we look for certification. We, we, look, we look for, uh, for others to, uh, to certify that this physician is good, that this lawyer is good. Uh, many of us do. Uh, but, uh, but only through the force of uh, the iron fist of government can, can we have restrictive licensure. And that's where government backs and, up these guilds. Yeah. And just to talk, and that's all about creating um, value in the market where everybody wins. So example, yeah. Yeah. when it comes to the certification thing, yeah. so if you're a union and you can prove that your you know, plumbers are better and you can market the fact that that certification is worthwhile, mm -hmm. you've provided value. Yeah. And 
if that's not true, that that certification means anything, guess what? Everybody will be able to pay less for a good plumber because we don't really need that certification. It's only when government comes through with a force element that we're no longer talking about what's actually valuable to the market because they can tell you that you need to have this certification, you need to be in with this union, even if that's not a value to consumers. It's only through government force that you can have elements, you know, basically pervasive elements within the market that aren't actually providing value. That's right. And that, so, so those are the two cases. And I, I want to I summarize them because I think it's very important for your listeners to hear them. Because the next time you're talking, about, talking to a progressive about that progressive's concern about, about limited opportunity for, for the lower half of the people of limited means, then, then you might want to mention those two things. Might want to ask them, why do you think housing is so damned expensive, so difficult for a poor person to move to San Francisco and, and earn a decent living when half your salary goes down the tubes in rent? It's because of of those 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 stuffy uh, smug progressives in Palo Alto and in San Francisco who think they're doing good uh, by uh, by making it difficult to build uh, by uh, through their zoning restrictions and through their rent control. Uh, uh, then, uh, secondly, uh, the rise of restrictive li- the the increase in restrictive licensure over the past few decades also a problem that progressives should put their mind around if they are indeed concerned with the plight of people of limited means. But uh, it, of course, your question was sparked by, by uh, the framework of asking, how does government retard economic growth? And of course, by denying people uh, the opportunity to move to high, produ- high productivity areas, and by denying people the opportunity to become plumbers and lawyers and other things uh, that they could become uh, and, and could service uh, the community with, uh, then, uh, then output is also curtailed and growth is curtailed. But, but, uh, but since we mentioned that, I might as well mention where soul bothered me. It's maybe a nitpick, but it sort of shows that that uh, that Thomas Sowell is a bit of a stuffy guy. He actually states in basic economics that it's okay to have restrictive licensure with respect to doctors and lawyers. I mean, I'm looking for the quote. Uh, where is it? Oh yeah, he says he says he writes, one cannot be a physician or an attorney without a license. Now that's a a license, of course, is a restrictive license, for the obvious reason that people without the requisite training and skill would be perpetrating a dangerous fraud if they sought to practice in those professions. Uh, so he thinks it's okay to have a to have restrictive licensure for physicians and for attorneys. Although he then goes on to inveigh against so many other examples of restrictive licensure. Well, uh, this is that's why Sol isn't quite the libertarian you and I would prefer him to be. Um, how would you how would you respond? Let me. It's a quiz yes, question. So, how well, would you respond to that objection, Rob? You're throwing me a lob here because oh. it's the simple answer that the same way there's a rotten tomatoes for movies, there'd be a very easy way for the market to let me know who's a good doctor and who's a good lawyer. Yeah. And th- the part that he's really not telling you about is these licensing laws are what drive up the cost. So while yeah. there might be, and the government could tell me, hey, we're going to give out a license to doctors and that sounds nice. What you don't see is that They'll create a license that only one company is allowed to have a hospital in an area. They'll create a license that only one company is allowed to manufacture old age homes. Mm -hmm. So you want to start getting into conversations about monopolies and competition. The real restriction there comes through government licensing. 
and specifically in healthcare, I'll tell you two really interesting cases I know of healthcare in terms of licensing getting in the way of um, technological developments. I spoke to a year ago, it used to be, I've spoken about this before on the podcast, but um, sleep apnea, it used to be you had to go to a center to get diagnosed with sleep apnea. I know a company, they have an app, you turn it on when you go to sleep, costs basically no money, they can tell you if your snoring patterns are indicative of sleep apnea, let's just say it's 95% as accurate as a sleep center, they're only licensed to work in one state. You know why? It's because the sleep apnea centers don't want you to be able to use this cheaper technology. And when you start thinking about preventative medicine, right, like that's what they're always talking about, seeing a doctor, preventative medicine. So here's an interesting one, like dentist, dentist, you know, the entire field of dentistry, you could probably go see a person for no money who will clean your teeth and then tell you if you got to go see a dentist and the dentist could be more of a specialty thing. Think about how many more people might actually, if you, for $25, you could go see a dude who cleaned your teeth, did the x-rays, told you if you needed to see a dentist, how many more people would see a dentist. Dentists would never allow for that. It could be the same thing with, with apps and for doctors where you could probably be seeing like a physician's assistant, a nurse practitioner for your preventative medicine stuff because it was less expensive and then just getting referred to the specialist, but that's not what they want. So short answer is he's wrong. The free market, the way it distributes any other good or resource could do just as good of a job of giving us the information on who's good and who need, you know, instead of government licensing. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't do any better than what you've just said, uh, Rob. I mean, when, when, people, when people talk about doctors in particular, and that, oh, they, they have power over life and death and all the rest of it, and so we need the government. To be, so, 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 so do auto mechanics have power. You know, if, right. if an auto mechanic doesn't fix your car right, then if the brakes don't work, you could kill yourself. You know, we, don't, we don't have restrictive licensure with respect to that. Chefs who, who cook your food in the restaurant, if they poison you, you could die. I mean, it's all ridiculous. And as you said, of course, we want, because we are not knowledgeable about medicine, we do want certification. We do want uh, uh, organizations to establish a reputation for certifying doctors. We do want, in fact, where Seoul is particularly good is when he talks about branding. We want branding because brands are ensure quality uh, and, uh, and uh, companies will protect their brand because they know that the quality of the brand is something that people invest in and rely on. And uh, so uh, you and I could start, you know, the Bernstein Epstein Medical Center and who knows what we might do. We might train 16-year-olds to do low-level medicine of different kinds. We, we, we will try to, to deliver. We will, we will cope best in the free market on, on the trade-off between quality and price. Some things have to be pricier because quality matters. Some things can be less so. And of course, when I've encountered lawyers in the real estate field, I've encountered lawyers a few times. In the divorce field, I've encountered lawyers a few times. And, and it, it was plain to me that you know, six months of working for a law firm, and I could practice divorce and real estate law. You know, and in fact, of course, before the guilt system took over, and you had to go to law school. You know, Abraham Lincoln never went to law school. He never finished college. You know, and uh, so, uh, so of course, you just read the law and you apprentice yourself, and that's how you become a lawyer. So uh, then, and of course, in medicine, who knows how creative they could be about dividing up different responsibilities and making it both cheap and effective. Uh, and then, oh, uh, and by the way, just to kind of go with what you're saying with the yeah. licensing, yeah. Um, and to me, life is about finding what you're good at and specializing in. Yeah. And when you go through this licensing system, the school system, like 
you might have the most brilliant trial attorney of all time. School wasn't his thing, would have been interested in being a lawyer and never did it. Yeah. Whereas if it was the other way where you could go apprentice, who knows, who knows who might be the world's greatest lawyers if it wasn't like this restrictive schooling system, which requires you to learn a lot of information that's going to be irrelevant to the actual career that you end up doing. Oh, cool. um, and so if you can think of like, you just got to, I, I don't know, it's almost like a trippier idea where you really have to remove yourself from our current reality. But if you can think about if everybody could, you could step into a legal office tomorrow, apprentice, find out if you'd be a great lawyer. And if you are a great lawyer, you can continue to rack up your wins. You got your track record and people can hire you. And if you start looking at every field that way, you can only just imagine the kind of economic progress we can, we can have where firstly, being able to get a lawyer wouldn't cost you as much money because it's a more open field. And you might even get a better lawyer because it's a different process in terms of um, that would allow for basically more creative people to potentially end up in that role as opposed to your current class of people, which re requires a very um, specific skill set, which is navigating school. Absolutely, Robin. And of course, you could I could get carried away on that point. You know, the the the, the government the, the government run uh, high school and college system is a plot against the poor. Uh, maybe I I could go into that, but maybe it would take us a little bit too far afield. Yeah, let's I mean, stay not, let's stay on topic because I know that you came in with uh, more <laughs> of the the missings of of basic economics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but uh, no, but I want to. What did I want to say? Oh, yeah, I only want to say that when uh, when you're talking to a progressive, when I'm talking to a progressive, I usually just like to cite the lower level restrictive licensure, uh, uh, just uh, uh, the, the fact that it takes, it takes more bureaucracy to start a bodega in the Bronx, uh, more <laughs> forms, more lawyers to start a bodega in the Bronx than it takes to start a software firm. Just the ways in which people have limited means, the kinds of things semi-skilled people might go into are, are penalized by government. But, uh, but then of, of course, if that person has a larger understanding of the world, then you go into whole things like medicine and law you know as i said why can't why can't some kid raised in a poor area just just work for a law firm and start becoming a lawyer at the age of 19 and probably do a more decent job and work harder for people that cares he cares about than some kid who goes to college and and then law school and so that's uh that's something that um that uh, you can occasionally go into with some progressives but maybe you want to limit your uh, your lesson to the lower level restrictive licensure that plagues people of limited means. Okay, so so Rob, if I've satisfied your requirement with respect to going into those things that Saul touches on about limiting economic now let's trash him. Let's do it. Let's yeah. get after him. Okay, okay. See now now here's an irony that I'm not that I'm not. It's not really trashing him, but it's something that I re I really find. Uh, odd and it's almost uh, an email i'd like to write soul about what he could do with with the sixth edition of the book that we you and i went through the fifth edition uh, there's a very important passage uh, in his book knowledge and decisions which was actually published in 1980 40 years ago and uh, when i read it it meant a lot to me i read knowledge and decisions when it first came out uh, published in 1980 uh, and uh, he's uh, in this passage. He's talking about the problems of the free market and how people might object to the way the free market works. And uh, I'll read. I'm going to read a couple of sentences from that book. Uh, and uh, he writes: Another problem is that different people have varying amounts of money, 
with which to convey their consumer preferences to producers. For many social critics, this invalidates any hope of an optimal use of resources via market processes. Uh, and this is something that I was, of course, I was, I was coming up from socialism, from that economic depravity of my past. And indeed, this is the sort of thing that left-wingers like to emphasize. Well, who cares about these alternative uses and how the market allocates resources? Because we have very different dollar votes. It's not a democracy. Poor people have relatively few dollar votes, and rich people have a lot of dollar votes. And as Sol puts it in a fair-minded way, for many social critics, this invalidates any hope of an optimal use of resources via market processes. But then Sowell then goes on to write in Knowledge and Decisions. However, this may be a more formidable problem in theory than in practice. When groups of consumers compete for the same products, each of the competing groups usually includes a wide range of income levels so that a rich versus poor competition need not be involved. So that's his first point. Uh, and I think it's a very important one to, to pause and contemplate, which is that when we talk about the differential dollar votes between the rich and the poor uh, and how uh, the, uh, the, the, the allocation of goods and services might be skewed in favor of the rich, we forget that rich and poor actually in so many ways buy the same things. They vote in the same way. The, the, the rich person's vote actually in that sense uh, 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 enhances the poor person's vote for, for mass entertainment, for sports, for cars, for oil, for all the resources of the world. So much of what is produced really is distributed to both rich and poor. Um, and indeed, of course, to some degree, there's a kind of a division of labor. Um, you know, it, it's been said that it's possible to produce a car for like only $8,000, know, a stripped down car that a very poor person can afford. But it turns out it's actually much better for a person of limited means to buy a, a car that was initially bought by a person of means and then that person of means sells it and, and, and it's sold as a used car to the person of limited means. So by and large, those differential dollar votes, uh, at, at least to a great extent, are, are really rich and poor voting in the same Can, direction. Go ahead, yeah. All right, we got to pause for 30 seconds because in the war of bladders, you're winning right now. And uh, I got to uh, use the restroom real quick, but I'll be oh, back in 30 seconds. Then oh. I want to respond to that. I, I want. I mean, let me use the restroom too. Then I'm going to do Perfect. that. Perfect. Okay. Uh, formal on. formal bathroom break. Sure, we'll sure, put okay. on the hold music. Sure, okay. <laughs> and while we're out there, you know, making use of this urine break, what could be a better time than to tell you about sheath underwear, the greatest underwear ever made? You know why? Well, it will separate your dick from your balls. That's true. Most other underwear, they don't have that technology. They haven't figured it out yet. They're still living in the Stone Age where your balls and your dick go into the exact same place. They had no idea what kind of technological developments were coming in the future. But they're here, and it's the newest underwear. But even if you don't like separating your balls from your dick, you, you feel like they're a happy family unit. They still like, belong together. Sure, sometimes they fight. Sometimes they get twisted. Sometimes they get stuck to legs. Maybe it feels like it's crowded in the backseat of the car. That might all be true. They might argue, but you don't feel like it's time for a separation. You don't feel like it's time to explain to the kids that while, you know, mom still loves dad, they're just going to live apart for a little while. You don't feel that way. You still want to keep it as one cohesive group all in the same place even if that's a little uncomfortable when you go to exercise. That's what you want to do. And listen, we're all for free choice. 
And here's the best part. You can still wear sheath underwear. It's like it's almost like a convertible. It's like top down, top open. You get to decide. You know, it's not like when you buy a convertible, it doesn't come with the top, and now you're just stuck driving in the rain all the time with uh no, you get to choose. It's a it's a pick your own adventure. Do you want to put yourself in the sheath hole or not? It's up to you. We're not judging you about how you choose to use your sheath sheath hole. It's a free country. But even if you're not going to use the sheath hole, really unbelievably comfortable underwear, great fabric, great for working out, and they support this show and a lot of comedy podcasts. So go to sheathunderwear.com, promo code RYM20, going to get yourself 20% off, and you're going to have great underwear. And by now, I'm going to venture to guess that that's the end of the pee break. I, I don't have a mental clock. I don't remember exactly how long I urinated for, but I feel like this was a good enough uh, filler of that time that now we can get right back into the episode and continue learning about other economic developments. Not all of them are as fantastic as when the world came around and invented sheath underwear um, from Robert, you know? They're like, there's some other inventions that aren't as great, but sometimes the market gets it right and they realize that underwear needs a sheath hole. We've been doing it wrong for a really long time and that's why once more, promo card RYM20 for 20% off. Let's get back into it. Gene, to, to respond to that, respond. Uh, okay. I, I find that to be such a, uh, I've had this conversation in regards to healthcare that some people fear, mm -hmm. hey, if government doesn't come in and force companies to offer healthcare to, you know, poorer people, oh. they're not going to get coverage. Oh. And oh, I well. say, I've responded to that to go, look at Walmart. Walmart's customer base is not wealthy people. Oh, yeah. That's not, they're not targeting wealthy people. Oh, yeah but they seem to be one of the most profitable companies in the world. And so what you're pointing out is that one of the fears here is that since wealthy people have more of the money, when companies come around to create goods and services, they're just going to create goods and services for wealthy people. But the collective wealth of poor people creates a tremendous profit potential to create goods and services for them. Uh, so they have no reason to not, like in other words, there's not going to be some neglected group of people by company companies because there's still profits and catering to them. The yeah. other thing that I think you made mention of, and um, it, I believe I read this from, uh, I'm, 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 it's just going to be another economist name that I pronounce incorrectly, but I believe right. it's it's either George Reisman or George Reisman. I don't know the way his, his last name is pronounced. <laughs> okay. I'm, glad, I'm glad I've got you intimidated. You know, I, you know what I like to you know, let me just a little joke. I find yeah. that so many people are constantly saying, uh, George uh, assuming I spelled his name correctly, <laughs> what I like to say is, and 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 I don't apologize if I spelled his name, if I pronounce his, I'm sorry, pronounce his name incorrect. Yeah, it's Reisman. Go ahead. Reisman. Okay. No, George. Go ahead. But don't 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 who cares how he pronounces his name. Go ahead. Yeah. Go okay. Ahead. So no, he had a fascinating article, which is um, yeah. we we all benefit. Neuralink is going to be a really good example. Not that yeah. I'm going to get that, but Neuralink. Yeah. You got Elon Musk. He's creating these chips that are going to go inside of our brains. At yeah. first, they're going to cost ten thousand yeah. dollars. No one's going to be able to afford it except for really rich people. Yeah. But over time, because rich people demand random or ex fantastic products, the technology gets better. They get cheaper to produce, and then they're available for everybody. So in that way, I'm not really competing with rich people. Like the if there's some you know uh, if Warren Buffett wants some random piece of medical technology tomorrow. That might benefit me in 20 years from now because he can invest a billion dollars into some random heart valve that doesn't exist and he can pay for it. But then all of a sudden they invent it. So it becomes cheaper for me in 20 years from now because they figure out how to, how to produce it. So in that way, 
I'm not really competing with rich people to get companies' attention. It's in my best interest that rich people go and buy these products because 10, 20 years from now, that's how I'm going to have a flat screen in my house for $20 or for 200 bucks. Yes. Well, okay. In, in, indeed, actually, it, you, you're actually anticipating the second part of Soul's argument, although, although I, I, um, uh, I flirted with it in what I just said as well. In other words, Soul sort of divides it into two halves, namely that rich and poor are often just buying the same thing, you know, uh, a popular film. Uh, they're all going to, to sports stadiums. They're all, they, so many things that are offered, rich and poor people just buy together. And But then you're making a different point, uh, which uh, is related, uh, which is uh, which relate, which uh, applies to Sol's second point, that, uh, that the rich are outnumbered anyway. But no, actually, come to think of it, what you're really talking about is the ways in which which uh, uh, goods are, uh, are initially produced or services are initially produced at a high price. And then, uh, and then once rich people like that good in service, then there's more investment in the field, economies of scale are realized, and then poor people, uh, people of limited means can consume that good as well. Uh, and, uh, but you're focusing specifically on medical care. And uh, indeed, you're certainly right that, uh, uh, that uh, again, uh, I would repeat the main point that most of almost all the large fortunes historically and to this day are made by, uh, by selling some good or service to the masses, not just to rich people. There are exceptions, uh, but by and large, uh, the people were thinking about uh, Jeff Bezos in particular, you know, the masses are using Amazon. Sam Walton, as you pointed out, Walmart is basically uh, patronized by the lower half of the population. Uh, and uh, so that's where the large fortunes are made. So and so that's what uh, what what entrepreneurs so see. for for my own clarity so yeah. what's the criticism of um thomas here what what does he well, get wrong uh, it's a sin of omission the amazing part of it is that he didn't specifically go into that point there's no there's no place where he says uh in in this book basic economics that uh, what he said in knowledge and decisions. I would have said to him that uh, that that a, that a leftist cynic is going to say that uh, that uh, that that well, you you didn't acknowledge the dollar votes, the the, the distribution of dollar votes. You're at, he does touch on it when he talks about how certain goods get introduced, like video recorders and other expensive goods like cell phones, and then they eventually get mass produced. He does touch on it but but it but it's not uh it, it isn't something that he puts a fine point on and even though he does put a fine point on it in his book of 40 years ago uh knowledge and decisions uh the again uh, the second point in uh the book uh knowledge and decisions he says the rich are outnumbered it's not just that the rich are often buying the same goods as the poor so that so that they're together they're voting the same way it's also true that the rich are outnumbered. And uh, the, the statistic I like to use uh, is, uh, in fact, I use it against socialists to make other arguments. The lower half of the population accounts for one third of all consumption. So to, to connect with your point, uh, Rob, if you're not going to, if, if you're going to avoid one third of all consumption as a businessman, uh, you're forgoing a lot of profits. And uh, uh, on top of that, the lower four fifths accounts for nearly two thirds of all consumption. Uh, so that uh, what we overlook is that while there's a certain, uh, th th there's 
a much greater uh, inequality in distribution of income than there is inequality in the distribution of consumption dollars just of consumption dollars that that the that the that the rich are outnumbered again uh, uh, more than half of all that is consumed are accounted for by the lower four-fifths and so uh, entrepreneurs to their apparel uh, will ignore those people that's where the money is that's where the market is uh, getting back to your point about medical care um, I, I think you're absolutely right that if you really talk about opening up the field, uh, opening up the field for innovative entrepreneurs, they will find ways to, uh, to market medical care uh, with high quality and inexpensively. And they will, of course, go after the broad uh, consumer market and, and make it affordable. On top of that, uh, of course, in the day, medical care has been dominated by, by doctors uh, who, who like restrictive licensure, who like uh, keeping uh, competitors out. Uh, but there is, of course, a great tradition of community hospitals, community hospitals uh, in the late uh, 1800s, uh, things like medical care, sick people uh, are, are, of course, where the philanthropic dollar goes. People, uh, you know, Mount Sinai is not just a mountain, it's a hospital uh, financed by Jews. And so there's, that, that's, it, it, we might as well introduce the point that, uh, that historically uh, the, the, the sources of charity uh, uh, are, are medical often, and that uh, that part of it will also be taken care of by the free market. I think that's a point worth stressing as well, even though your point is probably even more important, that 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 profitable medical care will probably be available to the masses. But because there is compassion uh, in this economy, we do notice uh, that the philanthropic dollar, even in the in this age of government subsidized medical care, the philanthropic dollar goes to the hospitals, goes to uh, to to the ways in which medical care is offered to people of limited means. So I think that will be entirely taken care of, both by the market and by what Sol later talks about, which is that that uh, there is, of course, an immense amount of philanthropy, uh, certainly in the uh, in, in the U.S. economy. Um, so, uh, excuse me, Rob. So my point then is that <clears throat> is that uh, Sol doesn't put up front, the point that uh, that uh, that the allocation of resources that has alternative uses it does indeed uh, 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 provide its largesse to all people, even though there's inequality of income, and even though he uh, again begins by acknowledging in knowledge and decisions that there are many social critics who believe that the inequality of income invalidates any hope of an optimal use of resources via market processes. Of course, you and I could go further and point out, uh, as Sol, of course, points out in many ways, that, uh, that, that, that you and I would much prefer to be poor uh, in a capitalist economy than to be, than to be middle class uh, in, a, in a socialist economy. Maybe if you're really rich in a socialist economy, then you've got a lot of people that you can prey upon. But, uh, or as, as, uh, as Russia- Even Robert, Stalin, did you see that great movie, uh, yeah. The Death of Stalin? Uh, I guess I didn't. No. Oh, it? it's it's funny. It's worth yeah. seeing. It's oh, a yeah. really it's a funny movie, but yeah. what it shows is Stalin himself 
when he got sick, they couldn't get a doctor for him because he had no. gotten rid of all the doctors. Oh, shit. So even being the richest person in, 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 in a communist place, you might not be able to get the goods and services you need. Although you've got plenty of concubines, more than most rich guys have. Yeah. Indeed, but you can't, you can't get decent medical care. Absolutely. Or as, as Russ Roberts uh, put it once, I want to credit that line with him, the, the economist Russ Roberts, people risk their lives, immigrants risk their lives to be poor in America, you know. And uh, so obviously we service the poor people uh, far better in our capitalist economy than the socialists possibly can in their so-called egalitarian economy. Uh, again, my criticism of Seoul is that he doesn't right up front grab that point that he, that he grabs so well in knowledge and decisions. And uh, so I think that is a sin of omission. Ironically, ironically, he could have benefited, benefited by referring to his own previous great book. Ronald Knowledge and Decisions, by the way, is a great book, although so most of it uh, is encapsulated in basic economics. So that's my first sin of omission. And I want to go into another one, um, which is a little bit abstract, but it really strikes an Austrian note. Uh, I hope you appreciate it, Rob. I hope the listeners do. Uh, Sowell, like so many others, treats capital capital equipment or anything that requires investment like human capital or like intangible capital, uh, uh, that's interesting to go into as well, requires investment. Uh, it treats capital, but let's think specifically of capital equipment, a factory, a store, an office building, something that requires the building of, 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 uh, of finance and of effort. He treats it as though it has the same status as labor and land. And uh, uh, people speak glibly of land, labor, and capital. Now, land, of course, is a term that economists use. Land also means resources, agricultural land and untouched resources like oil, forests, uh, minerals, all of those things. Can I ask a question, though? Uh, yes, Why sure. isn't all of that just considered capital? Well, um, because, uh, okay, uh, because the term capital means that because now, because I guess you give me the opportunity to explain the framework, capital is something that requires human intervention. You you have if you have an if you have an untouched uh, uh, um, plot of land, it, it it offers you certain bounty. Possibly, it might be naturally fertile. If you have um, oil in your backyard, it offers you a certain bounty. But you've done nothing with it. It's untouched by human hands as yet. Uh, and, but uh, I would think just yeah. I've always, um, yeah. or at least I came across the term of human capital, which is just essentially human workers. Yeah. But you can have people. Let's just let's be uh, mean about this. You can have a yeah. bunch of dummies from another country who are nothing other than like the fact that they can move their hands and move rocks from one place to another. I would yeah. still refer to that as being human capital, being that they're a resource. So in the same way, I would think well, Warren Buffett, if I were to buy. You know, giant fields, that's that that's part of my capital is that I could be, you know, allocating my fields to a specific usage. So I would think part of when, when I'm talking about someone's capital or their accumulation of capital, I don't know why you'd exclude their land from that conversation. I guess you could include it, Rob. Uh, I, I'm, I'd, I'd have to sort this out. I, you, you're throwing me a couple of curves, but I'm going to try to explain uh, all of this. Uh, you do understand that it might be useful to talk about labor 
as a okay. separate entity. Okay, but then, but then, and then when we talk about human capital, we talk about uh, taking Rob Bernstein or taking Gene Epstein, untouched, unschooled, untrained. So we are labor, and then we develop our human capital through investment, through time, and uh, and that. So isn't that a proper process to talk about, Rob? That that when you get your first job, really you're you're not so much worried about what you're earning now. You you mo should mostly be concerned by the skills you're acquiring as uh, on that job. Isn't that a useful concept to talk about labor and then development of untouched labor? Yeah, just uh, the, so yes, I. I, I Yes, it's a useful concept to talk about how you can, I guess, develop your skill set and become yeah. more valuable. And I guess also the fact that uh, how you mix your labor with natural resources is also an interesting conversation. But just for my own clarity, yeah. Yeah. I always thought I always thought of capital basically as anything. I'll use this definition, yeah. even though I never read this, but okay. capital is basically any person, good service that you can put towards basically an investment or another use. It's like an item that could then be used to go ahead and make your next investment. It's capital. So like if I owned a plane, that's a form of capital. Equipment would be a form of capital. Yes. If I owned slaves, that would be a form of capital. Like in other words, basically anything that you could, oh. like if I'm starting to figure out how I can make an investment into another industry, like everything would be that I could then be taking, hey, I'm going to use this land, put this piece of equipment on here and put these labors on that. Those would all be like the capital that I'd be allocating towards. Let's say I decided to make a sock factory tomorrow. So I go, I'm taking my field. I'm going to put my laborers there and I'm going to take this machinery. So that would all be the capital that I'm putting towards building my sock factory. So to me, just all of those things would be considered capital. Maybe I just have that wrong. Okay, okay. No, well, okay. I, I can see where from the standpoint of, you've got that finance degree, Rob, and I can see where you're thinking from the standpoint of being a businessman that that this is all capital. And I don't know, you might even talk about finance capital. I, I, I guess I, I want to suggest to you then a, a slightly different framework that from the standpoint, say, of a Caruso economy, let's say you just have Caruso and Friday, they're on an island. Uh, they, what, what they have is two givens. The, the, the two things that are given to them are their own labor. There's the laborers, uh, whether they've developed it or not, just they are given. That, that's the bounty uh, or the bounty of any society is that you have a bunch of potentially willing laborers. Uh, so that's, that's a given, a given by nature, the fact that the labor is there. Secondly, you have land and resources. You, you have this field, you have that field, you haven't touched it. You, you have that mineral there, that mineral there, you haven't touched it. So it's all bounty, it's all given to you. That's land and labor. So the, then the framework is to say that you then turn those, that labor and land, you combine it and you create capital. That, a different thing, because that requires the use of land and labor and resources to create the store, to create the car, to, to, to create uh, the factory, to create the capital stock that you're making use of. And, and so that's a different thing, because that requires human intervention. It's not an initially given bounty. It, it all comes from land and labor. 
Would that be a framework that you could endorse, Rob? That 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 there's the God, the the the, the nature's bounty of land and la uh, and labor, and then capital, which is what you invest in through effort to provide to to combine that land and labor into something else. You you have to develop the land to grow things. You have to you have to take the minerals of the of, of the world in order to create the tractors or create the factories, and so that's. The, the difference that's why people so like it requires human effort human effort is the if you there's a formula for creating capital yeah. it's raw product plus human effort equals capital exactly and it create and it takes time it takes time to do that that's that's another part of it which soul mentions as well and uh, so it takes time and it takes a, it it takes a certain outlook because you are predicting that the time it takes you to predate to produce that capital by what by the way which means that you're not producing anything for your immediate consumption that's that's an investment it's an investment of time in something that that will be a, an intermediate good a good that you use capital in order to produce consumer goods which is of course your objective you you're producing the tractor and you're producing the factory and or you're enhancing uh, the skills of people or investing in them for no immediate return uh, in order uh, to produce more consumer goods later on, or classically, you know, uh, Caruso and Friday are fishing just off the uh, off, off the shoreline, and then they spend a lot of time building a boat in order to go out to to, to find more fish to enhance uh, their their so, take of fish by building the boat. But you guess, yes, I have a question for you, and yeah. this question might annoy you, and it might be a little bit of my Not, Talmudist. My Talmudist background. Nothing annoys me from you, Rob. You're a great guy. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Let's say I buy a field, yeah. and in the middle of the field, I find a working tractor. Yeah. So to you, that working tractor would be considered capital, right? It was produced by somebody else. Some, I mean, you didn't produce it. No, Rob, if you want to talk about buying capital, that's a, that's a different order of, of point. But, but, the, but the tractor had to be produced by somebody else from land and labor, from resources. But go right, ahead. Right, but now if I find oil in the, in the middle of that same field, yeah. so oil, the same as that working tractor, has immediate use. So why would the tractor be considered capital, but the oil wouldn't? Well, the, the oil... I mean, the oil has immediate use. Yeah, I mean, I could, I could literally just pull it right out of the ground, and I mean, I guess well, you, you have to process well, I mean, it. Yeah, you have to. You you have to produce a, a a means of extracting it, Rob. I mean, I, I know you're using. All right, I so yeah, I guess my I, example works better for you than it did for you me. Might be able to yeah, yeah use another examples. I mean, there might be some kind of capital that you can use right away. I mean, I guess you can imagine. I can imagine. Fresh water. I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, some sort of resource you might be able to use right away. But 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 my actually the point I'm getting to is only that capital requires time and effort, and it comes from labor and land and and resources and the point that Rothbard made uh, that, uh, and maybe uh, others made it before him, but I first encountered it in when I read Rothbard's book, Man, Econ Economy and State, is that, is that labor and land and resources, of course, land referring to resources, they are, they are the, basically the original factors of production. They are the bounty. Capital is what you produce from land and labor, and therefore capital has no independent value. You, you, you produce capital by purchasing Purchasing labor and land—that's his point. And and uh, the reason why it resonated for me is that it means then that capitalists, as such, don't 
get any direct return. The capitalist as such simply buys labor and land. The returns only go from labor to labor and land. And then uh, when Rothbard then asked, how does the capitalist make any money at all by producing capital? He, he makes money through the interest cost because he, he invests time and time means then that he pays his labor and land a discount because he because he will not produce that capital unless he has the prospect of making more money later on because he is advancing funds to produce that capital just like Caruso and Friday, they're not dealing with money, but when they ask themselves, is it really worth it to build the boat? Because while we're building the boat, we won't be picking berries. We won't be doing, cons we won't be satisfying our consumer desires. We have to get a greater return on that, that time and effort. Isn't that just uh, opportunity cost that there's no free lunch? Isn't that basically what you're describing? It's just the fact that I'm involved in one activity means I can't be involved in another activity. Okay, sure, but but it's but it's a particular kind of opportunity cost, Rob. It's only that 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 when you are investing in order to build capital, then then you're up. You, then what me, what that means is that the you're using resources that do not satisfy immediate hour by hour and day to day needs. They are investment in the future because capital requires time to to produce. And so the the point there is that the, that the, the the opportunity cost has to do with foregoing consumption. And the capitalist puts up money, pays you and me as laborers to produce the capital so that we can eat. And the capitalist has to have, has to have saved some money so that he can eat. So it's, while there's compensation. There's comp in other words, part of capitalism is that there's compensation for the delayed gratification. And so that there's a sacrifice that everyone's making in terms of when they make these investments. And you feel that this is a um, an omission and that he makes that part of why capitalists should be compensated is because of the sacrifices they've made. And so it's a failure of omission because Thomas makes no reference of this throughout the book. Well, he, he, he alludes to it here and there, but I'm only saying he doesn't kind of put a fine point on it by pointing out that, cap, that, that when you think of the returns to capital, land, and labor, and you think of them as ha all having the status of the same, of, of being factors of production, and he's constantly talking about buying capital, buying labor, and the trade-off, he doesn't put a fine point on the idea that capital is actually a derived product. It required time and effort, and, and it comes from labor and land and resources. Labor, land, and resources are the factors of production that actually get some money. There's no specific return to capital. The only return to capital, is the first return to capital, is, of course, the investment of time. No, no capitalist in his right mind, if he's rational, or Crusoe and Friday, would, would not be rational uh, if they did not count on the idea that if they build the boat and they create that capital, they will be able to go to further, uh, further out from the island and get more fish so that they will get some return on forgoing uh, the opportunity to spend their efforts on, on producing more consumer goods in the short run. So that's the time, the delayed gratification, as you put it. Uh, and then secondly, of course, uh, the, the, the second motivation for capitalists is the entrepreneurial profit, the arbitrage, that you and I recognize that, uh, that, that if we invest in capital, we can produce something that is so valuable that, that, if we, that, that whatever we pay for the land and labor, we're going to get a huge return once we have that capital produced. So, so to kind of 
so to kind of bring this home, because I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think I now fully understand your criticism here. Yeah. It's that if, if you were handing someone a book tomorrow so that they could learn basic economics, yeah. one of the things you feel this book is basically lacking is a conversation around time preference, where if we're trying to kind of take a look at how do we best motivate society and allocate scarce resources in a way that benefits everyone and has growth, we should also understand that there are um, developments and benefits that come from people delaying gratification and making investments with their scarce time into developing things. And so that is a, that's, like, that's a crucial element for w one of the incentives that exists in the market is that you can make an investment in your time and then have future benefits. And so um, this book doesn't fully kind of, I, I guess, lay that out. Um, that you would have to have that piece of knowledge from, you know, knowing that or having read different works. Okay, well, that's good. I mean, but what, what you just said, it certainly captures a good part of what I'm arguing. I guess, uh, I guess it, it's also part of it that I guess I came from the mindset of the left wingers. And I tried to point out that in a way, uh, the, if the left wing doesn't feel that capitalists deserve a return, they were more right than they know. Because essentially, the returns all go to land and labor. And the capitalists can only make a return from the time preference, from the from the delayed gratification or but that's the other point that but then just from to, the entrepreneurship to, uh, from the entrepreneur from the <laughs> arbitrage from the fact that he recognizes that there's some great opportunity in in creating this capital that nobody's realized that if you create this capital and you sell this kind of good in the future then you're going to get somewhere and then of course that's the deal that workers we workers make with the capitalists they're giving us money in the short run and uh, and and they they're delaying their gratification in the long run they're putting up the for the funds. That kind of deal, and putting a fine point on, on the process, on the fact that capital is something derived from land and labor, and, and that the capitalist ekes out his living only because he's, he makes money from the spread, that that's, I think, something that's so- However, if you're going to just play devil's advocate here, oh, if sure, you're trying sure. to argue oh. with the left from the logic of the left, oh, okay. they might say that you're able to capture a larger spread if you have more land and labor available to you. And so the problem here is that there's not an equal distribution of labor and land. So no. in other words, so when I, as a capitalist, if I'm making like, for instance, if I'm making a decision tomorrow of the factory, I'm going to open up out of this apartment. There's not a lot here for me to, to work with, to start out with. Uh, there's not, you know, there isn't really space for me to hire a bunch of workers. I don't really have anything for them to work on. And so I'm not going to be able to capture the same spread as Warren Buffett, no, no. So basically, right. so in that regard, I think the people on the left would say we need some intervention here so that we can have an inter in, um, a more equal distribution of the labor and land so that if people want to come around and use their, you know, their investment, we're all on the same footing. Somebody ought to, the government ought to give Rob Bernstein a little bit more money to create even more capital. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Well, all right. No, no, no. Look, obviously, uh, you're right. Uh, clearly, this doesn't answer all the points that uh, that the socialists would make, uh, what I just said. Uh, and because uh, you and I would perhaps revert to the point that obviously what happens in a functioning capitalist system that isn't rigged by the crony capitalists is that you find rem a remarkable number of people who start from virtually nothing, who, who somehow are able to persuade others to back them in their ventures, or they bootstrap the, their ventures. And then we find, strangely enough, that, uh, that, that, 
that Jeff Bezos came from a relatively poor family and now now he's the richest man in the world. And on top of that, as Chris Rock said, he got divorced and he's still the richest man in the world. Yeah. Basically enough. (laughs) And, and, And he's not even 55 years old. So how did that happen? Well, Steve Jobs came from virtually nothing out of a garage and, and became um, a multi-billionaire. And so we find that somehow or other, there are people who manage. And then, of course, we would get into the, to the point that the game is often rigged in favor uh, of the capitalists who are already established. Uh, and uh, we want to give equal opportunity to those who are not. So obviously, the financial markets do indeed provide a certain amount of opportunity for even you and me, Rob, if we have good ideas to uh, to to, uh, to get ba- enough backing to launch those ideas and get somewhere. Uh, there's probably no other way. We want, obviously, a decentralized financial system. We don't want the likes of Barack Obama investing in companies like Solyndra that he thinks are a good idea, because obviously, these people have nothing to lose. They have no skin in the game. And clearly, if we had government intervene, they would just allocate money. They, they, even with the best of intentions, they wouldn't have a good idea about where the opportunities are because knowledge and innovation are always a dispersed commodity. And, and second, uh, they would likely be corrupt and give investment funds to their friends, which we already see happening. So that's no solution either. But uh, so I hopefully that addresses your point. My, again, perhaps I've been a little bit abstract. My only point is that it's not useful to think of capital as having the same status of labor and land. Capital is, a, is something that you develop with, with over time from labor and land and, uh, and resources, because land including resources. And the only way you eke out your profit is through, uh, through, uh, through the arbitrage, through the fact that you're paying less for that labor and land and resources than you will ultimately earn later on partly through what we call time preference, delayed gratification, and partly through entrepreneurship. The fact that you see a spread, you see an opportunity to make a lot of money. The capital has a very different status. And in that sense, by the way, I'm, I'm not one of those who's too unhappy with calling our system capitalism. Uh, because, and uh, you know, as you probably know, a lot of people think it's terrible. And Karl Marx was the one who, who wrote the book Das Kapital. And, uh, and so he called us called the system capitalism, and isn't that terrible? I don't think it's terrible at all, because in a sense, it really does uh, uh, reduce to the idea of this derived thing, capital from labor, land, and resources. All right, so number three, we've got one and two, the third, the third flaw of omission. Well, let's see, we could get into the fact that, that, that Sowell uh, uh, has a just as much of a problem with price inflation as he has with Can price I, That deflation. made me so happy when you put that in the email because yeah. I was predicting yeah. what you were going to take issue with. And when yeah. I was reading his piece on deflation, it caught yeah. my eye. So Price I'm deflation, tr- yeah. 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 Uh, well, um, let's, I mean, I, I insist on the term price inflation and price deflation. You always use that word price. Uh, uh, because uh, just the terms inflation and deflation used to refer, and I think it's useful to, 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 to keep them referring to something different. Inflation is just an expansion of the money supply. Deflation is a contraction of the money supply. And, and uh, in, an expansion of the money supply might or not or might not lead to price inflation, and a, and an, a contraction doesn't always lead lead to price deflation. But so let's just use the words price inflation or price so, deflation, or all right. rising prices or falling prices. But let's but, talk. But, 
But let's what, talk, what you're saying? Let's talk price deflation okay, because yeah, yeah. Yeah. he, this is what's yeah. interesting. So yeah. like you said um, before, well, actually, yeah. no, I don't want to jump ahead in your notes. Um, Thomas seems to give a little bit of room to government being able to come in and actually help the market. So the last example that we gave was in terms of licensing laws. Yeah. So for, also for lawyers and physicians, right? Else. <laughs> right. Also, so when it comes to inflation and deflation, he seems to suggest that we there might be a need for government to ensure that these that these things don't happen. Yeah. And so inflation, I guess we can all understand what the issue with inflation is: is that your money is becoming less valuable and all of a sudden you price know inflation, the price money inflation. price inflation and all of a sudden the money that you have you can't buy the same amount of goods yeah now price deflation is interesting because it means if i'm making the same amount of money all of a sudden i can purchase more stuff the money i have is actually more valuable yeah, yeah. that if i'm making 100k a year and you have price deflation i'm yeah. going to be maybe i can buy what was a house $300,000 a year ago all of a sudden yeah. things i couldn't afford i can afford and you would think, my God, that's that's fantastic! All of a sudden, or if you have money in the bank, if all the if if um part of the basis of society is saving and investment, so if I've saved and the money I've saved, there's price deflation, so it's actually more valuable. That's going to be great. And then also, if there's price deflation, people are going to save more money because they think that by saving their money, it's going to go up in value. Mm -hmm. But he says that deflation would be negative. The reason he gives is that anyone with a mortgage or debt. So all of a sudden, their commitment is is basically greater. If I had a commitment of a debt of a hundred thousand dollars, there's price deflation, and all of a sudden I can't. I own a farm. I can't sell my apples for the same amount of money. So the debt that I have is going to become more expensive to pay off, and so it's unfair for people that have debt. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious yeah. now to hand that yeah. over to you because okay. yeah. uh, yeah. I'm fascinated by how price deflation is bad. Yeah, yeah. Um, well. Uh you, uh, your summaries are good, Rob, up, 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 up to the point that you took them. The broader context here is uh, this. Uh, when people ask me, for example, uh, what are some of the things that distinguished Austrian economics from mainstream economics, from Keynesian economics, or mainstream generally, or even from Chicago economics, which is what uh, the economics of Milton Friedman, which Seoul associates himself with, uh, uh, Austrian economics, uh, uh, uniquely uh, does not take it for granted that the government should run the money supply. Uh, all of those other uh, brands of economics do indeed think that the government, if it doesn't specifically run the money supply, should at least intervene in crucial ways with respect to the money supply. Uh, because in Seoul's case, for example, you have to intervene in order to prevent price deflation. Uh, and uh, so the Austrians then have a whole rich tradition of trying to understand how money arose uh, and, uh, and that pointing out that it can only arise on the free market. I won't necessarily get into that, but I it's think also very important. Yeah, one of yeah. the things that I thought was interesting in this book and I was going to bring up, so maybe yeah. th this is actually a good segue for yeah, it, yeah, is that yeah. A lot of the conversation in this book is about how prices are signals. Yeah. And so it, we're best off not distorting the market signals because the best allocation of resources are going to happen around basically good signals. Yeah, yeah. He, however, never takes that conversation to the discussion of interest rate, which interest rates are basically the price of money. Yeah. So if you have the government getting involved in distorting the price signal of money, I would assume that in some ways that must be hampering growth. And yeah. so- 
I can't, there, uh, my brain can't no. stretch any further than that on this. So I would love it if you could kind of, because that seems to be lacking in this book that while he discusses the importance of market prices because market, because yeah. pricing is a signal, he doesn't extend that analysis to basically interest rates, which is controlled by, um, at, you know, at the moment it's controlled, controlled by the Fed, which I believe is both through the, the rates that they set as the Fed fund rates to lend money to the banks, then also um, the interest rate that they'll pay you if you're buying a government bond. Yes. Okay, that's a, that's a, that's a good point, uh, Rob. Uh, and indeed, uh, it gets into the larger point that uh, that the Austrians would argue that consequentially, uh, in terms of how well uh, the market does, it's better, much better, to have government completely out of the business of money. Uh, and uh, and and why? Partly because of what you just said, that if so, so while so, I think occasionally he mentions that it's bad if government is keeping the interest rate too low. Uh, you know, I think he mentions that briefly in passing, but it doesn't put a fine point in it, just as you indicate that that if uh, if if prices should be allocated in the free market, then as you say, Rob, how about one of the most important prices of all, the price of money which is the interest rate, which, by the way, does reflect time preference. He does get that in, into that a little bit as well, but again, doesn't really attack it whole head on because he never considers the point that uh, about how uh, the free market would allocate money and allocate uh, in the interest rate. Because even even assuming uh, that there's no corruption on the on uh, on the part of government, even assuming that there are a bunch of brilliant uh, managers of money, it's extremely unlikely that they are going to be able to guess right about how the market would allocate the price of money. They, it's no more likely that they could guess right about that than they're guessing right about how the market would allocate the price of oil, the price of housing, or the price of anything, uh, because prices can only arise through the decentralized information that comes from the free market. And, and interest rates are, by and large, a reflection of, of people's time preferences, uh, t time preferences having to do with delayed gratification. That, that, that in, a, in an economy where people want everything now, the interest rate would be very high because the interest rate would be very high in order to induce enough people uh, to, to want to delay their gratification. In an economy where people um, can look to the future, the interest rate would be relatively low. So, and that's collectively in terms of the actual votes on the market. So as you indicate, uh, part of the problem with having the government manage the money supply is that we now have a Soviet-style uh, uh, money supply where, the, where the most, perhaps one of the most important prices of all, the price of money, is, is government uh, allocated, and, uh, run by government decree. Yeah. And I think the thing to be aware of there is yeah. that sometimes it gives a, um, a false signal um, that money is cheap and so it's good to make investments, which actually makes the boom and bust cycle much worse. Precisely. That's a whole other area which we, which we can anticipate. Exactly. So there are all those dangers. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we haven't brought in the fact that, that the reason historically, uh, as I like to put it to people, uh, we, we, could tell, we could tell the history of government involvement in the money supply in about 
two sentences, three sentences. The kings had to fight their wars. They wanted to fight their wars. Uh, they, they had to finance those wars. Uh, there, were, there were two ways of financing those wars were either higher taxes or borrow. But then they discovered a third way. Why not seize the money supply and expand the money supply and then live off that printed money? Why not just finance it out of your own printed money if you control the money supply? And that was the corruption uh, that originally got government into taking over the people's money. And of course, I'm stipulating that actually the money supply can only originate on the free market. We're not going to have the time to get into that one. However, that's how government got involved. And now, of course, we have modern monetary theory, which I call modern monetary tyranny, which talks about how the government doesn't have to tax or borrow at all. It can simply run uh, the economy strictly on printed money, and it can run its welfare warfare state. And so that's the key reason why we want government out of the money supply, because government originally got involved for corrupt reasons, and it remains in the business of controlling the money supply for corrupt reasons and, but yeah I, and one more thing and I, I'm wondering if I'm right on this because he doesn't spell yeah. it out but I was yeah. thinking it so what one of the things he says in regards to prices and the free market being the best allocations of goods and services is that otherwise if government comes along and does it you end up with hoarding and so the example he gives is kind of with rent stabilized apartments so if I have to go and buy an apartment in the market I'll only buy what I can or can't afford if government makes certain units available underneath market costs, people that don't necessarily need those units will oh, hoard them yeah. because they have them. And so any points to in New York City, you've got most of the rent controlled apartments are actually being held by people of, um, you know, basically wealthy people. Right, well, so it's going to the wrong people. Empty nesters, people don't have any kids anymore. Who, I mean, you know, one or two people living in nine rooms when, when uh, you know, families of four are living in two rooms. Absolutely, because they don't move out uh, to, to, to when they don't need that space anymore because it's so cheap. They remain in the rent stabilized apartment for that reason. But you were saying, though, so I, yeah. So I think also in regards to, um, you know, the interest rate being a price signal. Yeah. You can correct me if I'm wrong here, but after yeah. the subprime mortgage crisis, government gave over a lot of money to the banks hoping that they would lend it out. And the banks basically ended up hoarding that money. And I think the reason they did it was because they wanted, they basically needed to keep it against other assets on their balance sheets that they didn't think were going to do so well. So they needed the capital in the banks. They didn't lend it out. Um, the point I'm trying to make is that it would seem that when government distorts the price signal of money, you also end up with hoarding the same as any other, like you know anything else that they kind of um, distort the market in. Well, you come up with some fascinating ideas, Rob, and I'd have to think about that one. I want to set it aside and maybe get back to you next session. But I, <laughs> it's it's a it's a potentially fruitful idea. But but I want I want to get back to yes. one to, to the main point. Well, you and I were basically talking about all of the bad things that result from government control of the money supply, and that the problem with Seoul in a broad perspective is that. Uh, since he's in bed with the Chicago school, uh, and which is really a mainstream school, 
and even though it's got a, it's in the Chicago School of Free Market People are certainly better than than the Samuelson School, but it's a mainstream school. So that's his limitation. He never even considers uh, the the question of why government should what, what are the harms of government controlling the money supply. All he really says is that government should be vigilant because while we want to avoid price inflation, and he guess acknowledges that government is very tempted uh, to inflate, uh, acknowledges that. Uh, although, of course, you would take it, you and I would take it further. Government is very tempted to inflate in order to finance the welfare warfare state. Uh, but he at least puts a toe in that point. But then he comes down on price deflation, which is where uh, this discussion began. And the 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 only broad point that we as Austrians do have to make is that is that any abrupt, sudden violent change in the economy um, will definitely cause uh, unemployment, will definitely cause disruption, will definitely cause turmoil. Uh, now, we hasten to say that the abrupt and violent changes in the economy all seem to stem from government uh, and that, that, that the free market is really much less likely uh, to bring about abrupt and violent change. Uh, but, uh, but, uh, and, and that's, of course, a, a key point we want to make. But when we, when we face uh, Saul's point about price deflation, falling prices, then, then we have to acknowledge that, uh, that, that if prices collapse by 50%, uh, overnight, then a lot of businesses that were selling their product suddenly find that they've got to take half of what they used to get, and and then how do they allocate their labor? You know, so indeed, uh, we 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 have to acknowledge that if something happens abruptly, there's going to be a problem. But but if, for example, uh, if if prices, uh, as happened in the 19th century, uh, declined by five percent a year, four percent a year on average, and everybody expects that prices are going to decline. You know, people often ask me, even sophisticated people have asked me, when prices are declining by 4% a year, how do businessmen invest? How do they make any money? Uh, uh, because uh, they're, they're going to have to charge less a year from now. And then, of course, the obvious answer to that is that, is that uh, we begin to expect that to happen. It doesn't happen abruptly. This becomes the norm for the economy. And that uh, a businessman who knows that he's going to sell uh, his product for 4% less a year from now bids the labor and, and, and resources uh, 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 to a price that acknowledges that, that reflects that. Uh, he, he discounts it. He, he pays for his labor and, and land, and, and indeed, of course, if he's buying capital goods, accordingly, so people get a chance to plan. But as I say, you and I would acknowledge that if there's a sudden and unexpected and abrupt collapse of 50%, uh, in prices, then that will probably cause some turmoil. Uh, and so, uh, so uh, I'm now uh, trying to take uh, Sol's point about deflation all the way to its logical conclusion and acknowledge that he's isolating a problem. Uh, and in particular, what you just mentioned, mentioned a bit ago about what concerns Sol is debt. 
and he mentions mortgage debt in particular. He says that in the 19th century, farmers were carrying a lot of mortgages and land, the value of the land was falling. And that, and that, so therefore the value of the collateral on their mortgages was falling and they could, and, and the, and the prices they were getting for the agricultural goods were falling and that they were then unable to pay on those mortgages and they had to default. And, and so, I mean, the first response is that I know, I'm not sure that he has his, his, his history exactly right, but for the moment, let's assume that that did happen. Something abrupt was indeed occurring, and, and there were bankruptcies for farmers, and there was, there was a lack of sort of creativity with respect to how you deal with it. And I guess, we, I guess you, and I, you and I might say, well, you know, how are we dealing, by the way, I'm a landlord with my wife, how are we dealing with the fact that, that that the restaurant that we rent to is is it can't can't admit uh, customers inside and has to operate outside and is really hurting. Well, well, we've we've reduced the rent by two thirds on that restaurant because we recognize, in terms of our own self interest, that if we insist on the full rent, uh, we're only going to drive the restaurant into bankruptcy and only hurt ourselves. What are we going to get another restaurant to come in under these circumstances of the government shutdown? Similarly, uh, if if we begin to move toward a society of of, of, defl- of, of of price declines, then there might be a bit of a shock on the part of people who, co- who carry mortgages. But an obvious solution would be to renegotiate those mortgages. There would be a flexible response. Uh, and so uh, the flexible response would be that banks holding that mortgages, those mortgages are, are going to recognize that they could they can insist on full price. But if money is worth a lot more because of declining prices, how about renegotiating the mortgage? Because it's not in your self-interest if you're a creditor to insist on full price and then and then and then insisting on default. You, what are you going to do? You're going to take over the collateral and you're going to sell it at an enormous discount anyway because the value of the collateral has declined. And I guess this is really, this is really odd to think about. You kind of have to stretch your brain on this, but if you're the bank and all of a sudden, like the money is actually worth more to you because there's price deflation, you might not actually need that guy to pay off the mortgage at the last year's rate. Because if you want to, if you as the bank want to go invest the money or you want to give it over to the next people, they don't need as much. So in other words, the bank itself, like in other words, the bank itself, if it takes the loss, let's just say your mortgage is $100,000 and let's just keep all the math really simple. Yeah. Price deflation, I, I might have this backward now. Let's just yeah. say it's 50%. So now $50 is the equivalent of what $100 used to be in terms of purchasing power. Yes, exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. Right. So the bank doesn't necessarily need to collect the full $100,000 mortgage because even if they get the 50000 coming in, that $50,000 is worth what hundred grand was a year ago. So they have no reason to collect the whole thing because in terms of them going to make the other investments or, you know, make the other money available, the next guy who needs a mortgage to buy a house, he doesn't need a hundred thousand dollars. He only needs 50. So in other words, like you can actually cap that loss at the bank and there's really no loss there. It's almost like, if you think about it almost to the bank, it almost becomes like a stock split because now the unit of account is almost just changed. So to the bank, I, I I might have something wrong well, there. Like, well, no, no, you, well, you, you what you said is right. You, the, your your arithmetic, your math is right, absolutely. And and the, and the the point to bear in mind again is that 
Sol is talking about, uh, he, he uses great historical examples throughout the book. And in this case, he latches on something he claims happened in the late 1800s, that farmers were hurting, uh, agricultural prices were collapsing, uh, and uh, land prices were collapsing, and the banks, uh, the banks forced them to pay full price, and they all defaulted. That's what he claims happens, uh, and happened in that particular period. I should add that there were a lot of problems with banks in that period. Uh, by the way, problems with banks, throughout, even in the 20th century, because the government did not allow banks to diversify. They were all fragile because of government policies. All kinds of things were operating. But the point that you are elaborating on, uh, Rob, is only that, only that even if you had some kind of abrupt collapse in prices, there's a fair likelihood that uh, they would be self-interest applying and that the banks would renegotiate the mortgages because of the arithmetic that you just suggested. Is your, is your best alternative forcing default and, and taking the collateral, which in any case is worth far less? Uh, so many, uh, uh, in, in a real free market, you generally work with, in, with, with customers that are illiquid. They're not insolvent, they're illiquid. You generally recognize that if you work with them, it's to your mutual benefit. So you renegotiate the debt. Um, and that's, that's assuming, by the way, something that happens abruptly and unexpectedly. The point, that, and so I'm acknowledging, you and I are acknowledging the worst case with respect to a price decline, an, an extreme price decline that happens unexpectedly and abruptly. But, but the broad point to make about price deflation, or indeed about a, a market in which Bitcoin might be the money supply or gold might be the money supply. Let's take the extreme and take Bitcoin. Bitcoin has a fixed uh, quantity of what, 21 million units. And so it, it blows the mind of so many uh, to, and I'm sure, I'm sure it would blow Sowell's mind if he wrote about Bitcoin, to ask, well, what's going to happen if you have a fixed money supply, doesn't grow at all, and, and yet let's say output grows by 6 to 7% a year? Well, Roughly speaking, prices would be declining. Uh, of course, there'd be enormous variation uh, from one uh, good to the next, but prices would be declining by six to seven percent a year. Not enormous, uh, not ten percent or fifty percent, but seven percent, and it would be pretty much expected on the market. The market would get used to it, and so all the contracts that you'd write, the debt that you'd write, uh, the, 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 the investment that you'd make would be more or less geared to that kind of expectation. And so that's why a free so market if I could were, yeah. In other words, if I was taking a mortgage in yeah. which right now would be, in my opinion, your, Bitcoin is too volatile, so I think this would be a dumb play. Okay. Let's imagine for, okay. for for let's imagine uh, theoretically. I'm talking about Bitcoin becoming money, Rob. It's not money right now. Right, just, but but, you know. but here's what we're saying. Theoretically, yeah. if a bank gave me a mortgage in Bitcoin, yeah. and I could predict that the exchange rate between Bitcoin and dollar every year, you know, Bitcoin's going well, there's up. There's no in, dollars anymore. Come, 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 oh, we're, 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 in a, assuming, we're in a world without dollars. I'm assuming, because dollars are the government money. I'm, right. assuming, I'm assuming a world in which Bitcoin, we talk about how it might become money. The, let's say Bitcoin becomes money. But, but the, the worst is, case, it's a fixed money supply, and that's the money right. that people So as, as there's price deflation, you would actually write the contract of your mortgage where each year you have to pay less Bitcoin on your house because each the bitcoin's actually going to be worth more and harder to get like you're going to end up working 
the same amount of hours to actually receive less Bitcoin for your work. Well, so you could almost, your mortgage would actually be in year one, you might have to pay $1,000. But if I can predict that Bitcoin is going to be 10% value, more valuable in year two, so now I'm going to be paying you $900 on my, because the yeah. same amount of labor is going to be required to get $900 into the person who issued the mortgage 900 Bitcoin next year is going to be have the same amount of value as receiving a thousand Bitcoin in year one. Another way, and I, and I was just thinking about this in regards to price deflation. Um, imagine, for example, you know, I, I, I lent you a thousand dollars, and as collateral, I had you give me um, a, a piece of gold, right? You give me a piece of gold that's worth a hundred dollars, and I issue you a thousand dollar loan against your hundred dollar piece of gold. I don't know why I do that, but I take a $100 piece of gold as collateral on a $1,000 loan. Okay, now, let's imagine is... that the price of gold shoots up, that oh. now that piece of gold that you gave me is worth $1,000. Now, I'm still, I'm st I, you still have to pay me $900. That's the agreement, even though I'm holding your collateral. But if you miss a payment, I'm not going to really pair, care about it because I'm holding more collateral than the actual loan. I would think the same thing would exist in price deflation because you still have to pay, you still make a payment on your house. Like if I'm taking a loan, you know, if I'm, if I've got a mortgage, I ah, know I have this wrong. I have it wrong because the payment is not to the bank on, on the, no, do you put down, when you get a mortgage, don't you have to put like 20% down, but is that down on the house or you give that to the bank? Well, uh, that's of course, that's a thing of the past. Of course, it used to be it was a 20% down payment. Now, of course, with government intervention, the down payments are far less, but you want to assume 20% down payment. Okay, yes. And, and then you borrow- Is that to the bank, though? That, you give yeah, that? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the more, well, the, more, you know, the mortgage, the, the, the creditor, the creditor is the bank, gets 20% and finances the other 80%. Right, so, here's, the, yeah, so right, here's what's interesting. So if you have price deflation, yeah. the money that you have in at the bank has yeah. also, is now worth more to the bank. So they don't have any reason to collect yeah. as much money from you because yeah. the collateral that they had just became more valuable. Imagine if instead of, imagine if instead of cash, you gave them a car and the car just doubled in value. Like yeah. let's imagine I gave them a Lamborghini well, instead well, of cash. Well, well, just a moment, Rob. The yeah. collateral, the collateral will presumably decline in value because of because of general price deflation. But but the but the pain, but but money increases. No, if in you value. Have no, if I have price, if I have a hundred thousand dollar collateral, like let's say I gave you a hundred thousand dollars in this price deflation, so that hundred thousand dollars is worth more because you can now purchase that, that's more the money. With it. The money is worth right. more. The money so that means, worth, but not that, the collateral. The money is worth more. Right. So if I'm giving twenty, if I'm putting down twenty percent on my house and the bank is keeping that. So if all of a sudden there's price deflation, the bank is still coming out ahead because they still is. have 20% of my money. They have yesterday's dollars in, so they have no reason not to cut me a deal on the rest of the mortgage because the money that I've given them, they're, 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 they're making on that. Well, that, well, that helps as far as it goes precisely. Okay, well, what you're latching on, Rob, is only that the money, the money that's being paid is increasing in value because of price deflation. And, and you are paying, you have agreed to pay them a monthly mortgage payments. And you, you've sketched out a scenario in which the monthly mortgage payments might be actually could be fixed to a general price index by the way yeah that, that could be but 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 actually it's even it's, it's even uh, a little bit more complicated than that because oddly enough what the house will go for and what, what if you're buying land or you're buying a house uh, on a mortgage then then the the, the the house will go for a price that also reflects expectations about future prices and if there's an expectation about declining prices will be underwater the current, the current price of the house will be lower as a result and all we're really saying is that 
if this is going to be a 7% decline, give or take, and if it's more or less expected, give or take, then, uh, then there's always turmoil on the free market. But when something is expected, more or less, uh, to happen, and when something is not abrupt on top of that, not 50%, but 7%, then there's so many flexible ways in which people writing contracts can work, can work those things out. And as I say, the only thing you left out, when you talked about how the payments uh, would be worth more because of declining prices, worth more to the bank, so therefore the bank would take that into account. It's also true that that the purchase of land, the purchase of, of a house uh, at a particular price would reflect a similar expectation about declining prices. So the point is that all these flexible arrangements with respect to self-interested parties would work it all out. And okay. that's why I'm giving you the hardest case of a fixed amount of Bitcoin, a fixed supply of 21 ounces of Bitcoin, 21 units of Bitcoin, I should say. Uh, and uh, that's the fixed money supply. And that's every, what, everything, uh, what everybody has to go on. And by the way, that in a way would give a certain stability of expectation to the market. The only wild card would be uh, how are prices fluctuating? How is real estate prices fluctuating? All of those are a risk factor that have to be borne in mind. So I'm only trying to address uh, Sol's extreme argument about uh, declining prices. The, uh, the story he tells about declining prices of uh, 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 farmland in the late uh, 1800s being a special case. And you're embracing the point that uh, actually I could even go the reverse and say that, uh, that it's conceivable, by the way, that we could have rising prices in a free market. Let's say that that gold becomes money. And let's say that, that the gold supply increases by 10% a year, very unlikely to happen. That's why, by the way, gold did become money because it's such a huge stock that even enormous gold finds can't bring much in the way of price inflation. But, you know, if a lot of gold is suddenly found, taking an extreme case, we discover it's in the ocean and we discover a very e easy way to produce it, then, then the free market could be a little bit disruptive. You could have a lot of gold coming out on the market and uh, gold, the gold price, the, the, the quantity of gold could be increasing by 20% and goods could be increasing by 7%. So you could have price inflation and a certain expectation that it might continue. Uh, the market would adjust to that as well, as long as it's not abrupt and as long as it's not extreme. But the point is, at the end of the day, what we have to acknowledge is that it's possible to draw a scenario of something abrupt and extreme on the free market. It's only that history tells us that, that, that first of all, uh, individual self-interested parties can work out an adjustment to those extreme circumstances far better than government can do it for them. And secondly, when we look at extreme and abrupt changes in the economy with respect to the money supply, with respect to the interest rate, they all come from government in the first place. And so that's, right. that's our, that would be our disquisition on that. And where Sowell, given the fact that he seems to be so much in bed with the, with the Chicago school that he doesn't even consider, uh, ironically, ironically, he's a student of Friedrich Hayek, and, and yet he doesn't even consider that Hayek wrote about the denationalization of money, and Hayek wrote seminal articles and indeed won a Nobel Prize for his work on 
Austrian business cycle theory. That is almost the most embarrassing thing I could say about Sowell, even though he's a giant in his field. It's a great book. Amazingly, he's a student of Hayek, and he's a student of a man who wrote so many important things about money and business cycle theory. So the, the, the other place where he calls for government intervention, yeah. and I know that this was on your list as well, yeah, yeah. Um, and lucky for everyone listening, it's a little bit less technical, so I don't think we're going to go oh, as far down a wormhole. People shut us off by now, Mark. No, no, no. Oh, they're with, I don't think people are going to listen to this one all in one sitting, but if oh, I know okay. my audience, yeah, yeah, they're going to love this one. They're going to love the education. Yeah. But I believe, I don't know if I'm going in order on your list, but this was on Doesn't my list and it made yours order. as well, yeah. um, is that he does call for government intervention when what he describes as external benefits. Oh, okay. And yeah, when yeah. I'm surprised yeah, yeah, he doesn't, yeah. I'm surprised okay. he doesn't use this terminology, but I'm surprised he doesn't use the, the terminology of a free rider problem. Um, and that he looks at certain instances where basically he goes, if government doesn't step in here, we're going to have negative ex externalities of essentially yeah. a free rider problem. Yeah. And I know that you had a specific refutation in terms of the um, uh, the guards on cars, the, the mud guards. So I'll let you mud, take mud it from there. Well, yeah, no, the mud guards are sort of a, a minor example in this sense. Uh, it's it. Gene Callahan wrote another a good book called uh, Economics for Real People, which is a, a a good popular work on Austrian economics. And I take I take that from Gene Callahan, where uh, Sowell uh, Sowell spoke about how uh, cars. Uh, uh, would uh, people who own cars would not be motivated to buy mud guards, mud guards on the back of the car, so that the mud didn't splash into into the person behind them, and the, they would have no personal motivation to do that. Which which actually is a little bit well, it's a little bit odd. But I'll return to the, why it's odd, an odd example in any case. But uh, but uh, all that Callahan pointed out is that Sowell's purview about what's happening, what's possible in the free market, is is so limited that it never occurs to Sol that 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 the roads could be privately owned and that um, and that and that if the roads are privately owned obviously if you own a road you want safety on your road you want a reputation for safety on your road so you might require the mud guards um, and so Sol just just felt that well the government owns the roads and the government doesn't care and so no individual car owner would buy a mud guard because it's only protecting the person behind him from from getting mud splashed on his windshield even though it's a very odd example anyway because I would think that you could sort of sell mud guards anyway because who, who wants the person behind you to be blind blinded by mud that person could ram into you I mean it's a, it's a kind of a, such a silly example because really it is in your self-interest even apart from who owns the road to, to have a mud guard because if the person behind you gets mud splashed in his windshield and they can't see he could kill you. He could uh, accelerate. It could be a problem. So it's a very bad example in any case that Sol uses. But the broader point that Callahan makes is that Sol doesn't even acknowledge the possibility that that the roads could be privately run. And indeed, so, it would be a perfect perfect story for him because roads were privately run, privately owned, and to some degree are today. But were, were you going to say something? Yeah. So let's go with his um, his other example. Oh. Uh, let's go with the military. Oh. So now oh, let's oh, pretend oh. we're not invading other countries, but okay. we have a we only have a military. So that if someone comes over here. You've got some defense. So well, the issue is, problem. yeah, no, well, the free well, rider problem is I might go, eh, you know what? I don't really, if, if they end up coming and invading, I'm next to my neighbor and yeah, you're going to have yeah. to defend my house when you're defending my neighbor. So I'm yeah. not going to chip in for this military because yeah, yeah. 
I can, I can free ride here. Yeah. It, it's not, you know, and so the issue is how does, without government, how do we take care of the free rider problem? I think you could probably see a free rider problem. There's probably some pollution examples. I can't think of it off the top of my head, sure. but yeah. if there, if you would have one issue, I guess with the, with, with just the open free market, you'd say there are certain circumstances where, um, it, private individuals will feel like I can get away with not making my contribution. Uh, And I guess the military is probably the best example. Like, let's just say we all agreed, theoretically, we all agree that we want a defense military. Uh, So without forcing certain people to contribute under the guise of government, how do we take care of the one guy who goes, I'm not going to contribute? Yeah. Okay, Rob. Uh, First of all, that isn't really on my list. But uh, it's, you're running the show, Rob, and therefore <laughs> I've, I've got to answer it because uh, you know, I'm a guest on your show and I want to be a, a decent guest. I, I want to say that first, that, that's, uh, that, that's a, a troubling example. Uh, and I guess you're speaking as, a, as an ANCAP, as an anarcho capitalist, where you see no role for government at all. Uh, and uh, you don't think that you know, defending uh, our borders is a role for government. Uh, uh, a couple of points. Interestingly enough, uh, uh, David Friedman, who is a kind of a, you know, he's, he, he, uh, I respect David Friedman, but he's a somewhat bloodless, uh, uh, dispassionate uh, analyst, uh, bloodless to a fault uh, in lots of ways. But he's, he, he does acknowledge that uh, while he's an ANCAP, he acknowledges that that's a potential weakness of anarcho-capitalism, that uh, defending our borders could indeed be a problem, given the free rider problem that you outlined, Rob, that obviously uh, if Epstein buys a gun and, and, and defends uh, the neighborhood, then Rob Bernstein doesn't have to. You don't have to go to the trouble because, uh, you know, it's a, you're free riding off my gun. And so that's, uh, that's the argument. Because uh, I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit ambivalent about it. You're now talking to a mushy thinker in this regard, Rob. I, of course, I would, I would make the point, I like to argue with, with those who, op- who oppose anarcho capitalism by pointing out to them that, that uh, look what we've got with trusting government with our so-called defense. You know, government doesn't defend us. Uh, once, once they change it, change the name of, 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 the, of the War Department to the Defense Department, you know that irony? It wasn't, wasn't until uh, post-World War II that it became the Defense Department, it used to be called the War Department. When they called it, the, now that's called the Defense Department, we know it doesn't defend us at all. It makes it makes life more dangerous to us, uh, for us. It basically means that a lot of terrorists want to blow us up because of all the, the murder and mayhem we commit in the world. So you would think that the last institution you'd want to trust with, with defending our borders would be government. So that's one answer and that and that we could probably deal with the free rider problem. But I, I, I generally duck that question Anyway, Rob, uh, with respect to the negative, you're talking about the positive, you know, the, the free rider problem, and you're, then you're talking about negative externalities. You're talking about basically a, uh, a factory that pollutes the river. You know, right. And part of the solution there is to have pro- the, the Austrian Someone solution. Someone owns the river. You want? You need someone to own the river to go. Hey, you're not allowed to pollute yeah. my river here. Yeah, it's a tort. I mean, I would say that 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 it's better to treat it as a tort, as a lawsuit. It basically reduces to the point that you know, if you throw garbage on your neighbor's lawn, then the neighbor should consume you for a tort. You did him wrong, and so it's something for the courts to adjudicate. I think it works best that way. Uh, it, in other words, it is it is sort of like an extra economic point. It's only that just in the very act of living, just emptying your garbage or or 
whatever else we do, or my right to move my fist stops at your chin. And so we do, we Austrians, we, or, or for ANCAPs, we do recognize that you do have to have a, a government of law that adjudicates the harm that one business or one group of people can do to another. So uh, I, I don't know how far Sol takes with that point, how far he goes, I'm trying to remember. I, he doesn't really endorse uh, the EPA, uh, but he does sort of, I guess, nod in the direction of government intervention being important in that regard. Uh, and uh, he doesn't completely acknowledge the resolution that people like Walter Block and, and Murray Rothbard have for it, which is that it's essentially just a lawsuit that you bring to the courts. And it's no different from any other violation of the zero aggression principle. But uh, Rob, I do, I, I am really eager, however, to get up on my point yes. four. Um, my point four is something that actually arose a little bit when you and Dave, uh, Dave Smith, were discussing uh, property rights uh, on a recent part of the problem. Uh, and uh, it, 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 it has to do uh, with, uh, with what uh, George Riesman, uh, that's how he pronounced the name, George Riesman uh, talks about uh, the stain of land ownership. Now, uh, if you recall what, uh, I'll go back to the, uh, to the case of part of the problem. Dave began by quoting somebody who talked about somebody owning land and then talked about somebody owning a table. And then Dave talked about how, well, if you made the table, if you mixed your labor, you made the table, the table should be yours. That's how, that's how an Austrian assigns that property, right? What do you want the table to belong to, to almost anybody who wants to grab it? You know, that's, uh, so, so that's what Dave was pointing out, but he was citing the table. Uh, the point that Sowell does not mention, but that socialists mention uh, not infrequently, Ben Burgess in particular, Ben is going to be uh, somebody I debate on socialism this coming April, nice. uh, that, that makes that the idea that land ownership comes from mixing your labor with the soil might be very nice as a pristine concept, but it's completely ahistorical. That's the argument he makes. And, it is, and he's partly right, uh, because we, we know that, the, that, 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 that the history of land acquisition and land ownership is completely stained by, by the corruption of government, by land grants given to people, land being seized by conquistadors, all kinds of acquisition of land that had nothing to do with mixing your labor with the soil, but had everything to do with violence. And so, uh, so a reason acknowledges that that is the stain of that history, that so much of land ownership did not originate uh, with, uh, uh, with uh, mixing your labor uh, with the soil. And- uh, I was killing now, Indians. What I'm saying what? But killing Indians. Killing Indians, yeah, well, yeah, the, okay, the killing Indians is part of it. Uh, they didn't really have a system of land ownership. I mean, all kinds of debates that we can have about certain things uh, having to do with, of course, the land ownership of the Southerners. Uh, obviously, as Rothbard points out, when the slaves were freed, they had mixed their labor with the soil. They should have been given the land and they weren't. So the point, the only point, the only broad point we want to acknowledge first is that if the socialists want to say that you, you libertarians have your head in the clouds, you're talking about assigning land ownership according to the mix your labor with the soil, but that's not what happened historically. That isn't the way it happened, by and large, or at least to a great extent. And we, we have to acknowledge that historical fact. And that's something that Sowell does not mention at all, but I think it's a, an important sin of omission. Now, what does George Riesman say about it? Something very important. 
What he says is that if you allow a free market to operate over a generation or two, the stain of land ownership is likely, by and large, wiped away. Because, because the, the allocation of land, the use of land, over time in a competitive free market will tend to fall into the hands of those who know how to manage the land best, who, who mix their entrepreneurship with the soil. That, that, if, that if you are a family who inherited land and you don't know how to use it because you just got it from inheritance, then it will eventually be sold or run by those who do know how to use it. And so, uh, so, so the point is that the solution once again lies in allowing uh, the free market to operate so that you find that farmland or real estate or anything falls into the hands who, of those who allocate it best, who put up housing for it, who do something useful with it, so that we can say that they have, so to speak, mixed their labor with the soil and that, uh, and that over time, the stain of land ownership I love that. Away. Yeah. I love I love George because basically yeah. what he's saying is that capitalism is the best distribution of resources. Yeah. And even if the starting point was not through capitalism, if yeah. we let capitalism play out, you'll end up some people, yeah, they got land because they conquered it, but guess what? There's gonna be some guy who's really good at using their land. Yeah. So he'll end up selling it to him because the other guy knows how to use it better. And within let's just say a hundred years, capitalism will end up getting resources into the best people's hands will then be able to make the best allocations with those resources and then everybody wins yes and and that and that hopefully in that in that the stain that they talked about which is obviously what you and i would regard as unjust acquisition of land that that it does begin to replicate uh the uh the uh, the lockean uh notion about uh, mixing your labor with the soil it does begin to become uh legitimate uh, in, in, uh, in, in the eyes of almost anybody uh, with a sense of fairness. It's legitimate in the sense that those who manage it best eventually acquire it. And so that's how the stain of land ownership gets wiped away and how the, the fundamental objection that socialists uh, level against libertarians about this poetic notion about mixing your labor with the soil, how we can properly address it. And of course, you mentioned George Reisman uh, and uh, George's book, uh, Capital, uh, Capitalism, it's called Capitalism. And uh, it's a, over a thousand pages. Uh, uh, about 650 pages of it is really uh, a great read. Uh, I could talk about where he goes wrong, but that's another book I recommend. Uh, but he, uh, uh, he is the only person I know, only economist I know, who, who addressed head on this objection by the socialists. And of course, it is a sin of omission in Sowell's book, because it is supposed to be called Basic economics. Uh, and so uh, I'm, I'm glad you appreciate that point. And I guess, yeah, I guess we're, we have a few more. Uh, uh, another uh, sin of commission, I guess you'd say, uh, is an ironic one, so to speak. When Sowell talks, it's called, uh, it's about the Marshall Plan. Uh, now I'll, I'll uh, explain what the Marshall Plan was for those who don't know their history. But, but this is in the broader context of Sowell's very good point. That, that foreign aid 
foreign aid when given to an economy that has no tradition of entrepreneurship, no property rights, no human capital, and no uh, no training in how to operate a free market that uh, that it usually does no good because because money is not going to solve those basic problems, the prerequisites of, of, of economic development, property rights and human capital and, and entrepreneurship. But then, of course, over and above that, uh, foreign aid generally does harm because foreign aid usually falls then into the hands of the corrupt governments and the corrupt people in charge who use it to suppress uh, the free market and do not use that money to enhance it. Uh, and so he's making a very valuable point, uh, which uh, which has been made uh, by a pioneering economist whom he acknowledges, P.T. Bauer, in particular, a British economist, who talked about the harm that foreign aid does, not the good that it does. Uh, and uh, William Easterly has written a lot about that, about the harm that foreign aid does, and how it really can't do good, that ultimately the good, the, the economic growth comes from investment, free markets, and local uh, the, the, the local development of free markets and of property rights. But then here I'm coming down on Seoul maybe carpingly in a carping fashion by saying that Seoul then acknowledges that the Marshall Plan was a big exception. Now, what was the Marshall Plan? The Marshall Plan was a program begun in 1948 at the urging of American Secretary of State George Marshall he, to send more than 13 billion in aid to 16 European countries over four years. And is regarded as a great triumph. And Seoul makes the point that it did a lot of good because it was already investing in economies that knew about capitalism, that already had property rights in place, and that, uh, and that therefore, that's one of the big exceptions of how the Marshall Plan did some good. Uh, but uh, I was just bothered by the fact that Seoul had not read a seminal article by Tyler Cowen. Uh, Tyler Cowen, being an economist, he usually bothers me most of the time in terms of his current work. But when he was a young guy, he actually wrote a seminal article on the history of the Marshall Plan. And he, and he showed that it likely did no good at all, that it probably also did harm. And that, for example, he shows that Great Britain uh, at the time, uh, this is post-World War II, 1948, post-World War II, these European economies were decimated. And so the Marshall Plan supposedly did a lot of good. But he points out that, uh, that when you actually examine the record of the Marshall Plan, it just makes no sense that it did a lot of good. That Great Britain, the largest aid recipient, performed very poorly post-World War II because they, they put in place a lot of socialist policies. That the countries that got a lot of help, like Greece and Austria, didn't begin to recover until the aid was nearing its end. France, Germany, and Italy were recovering even before the help arrived. And that the real, uh, the real uh, thing that lifted these economies out of the rubble was the, the usual lessons, entrepreneurial culture, legal stability, free markets, and that the Marshall Plan probably uh, di did more harm than good because it did not encourage economic freedom. Uh, U.S. officials advocated high taxes, extensive public spending, and Keynesian economics. So it just bothered me that, that he misreports that history. If he disagrees with Tyler Cowen's conclusion, because it's pretty devastating that you really find no pattern of success with respect to the Marshall Plan at all. You find, again, that countries were developing before it and that, and that countries that got a lot of money 
didn't develop at all. It's all explained by how soon and how much they turned to the free market. Uh, so maybe I'm carping there, but uh, but uh, I'll pass beyond that and then talk about uh, his uh, his perhaps the worst chapter in the book, uh, which is the history of economic thought. What did you think of that chapter, uh, Rob? I believe if correct me if I'm wrong yeah, here, yeah. I think that's the last chapter of the book, right? Well, the last year with this parting thoughts, you know, it's one so, of the final I, chapters. So to be, to it? no, no, no. I, I listened to it yeah. when I was doing a recap of the book and skimming through. Yeah. When I got to that chapter, I kind of had enough. So it's not the freshest in my mind. Okay. I know he, I know he talks about um, Adam Smith in there and a bunch of the other classics. Yeah, so yeah. I'm curious to hear what you take issue of it, but it's not, it's not one of the things I, I guess I am most versed in. Yeah, well, okay. I'll just mention uh, two things because there, there's so many problems with that chapter. Uh, I mean, it makes a few good points, uh, uh, but uh, there are so many problems. I'm, I'll mention two. Only that uh, that Adam Smith, uh, whom he calls the father of modern economics, he does uh, legitimately point out that Adam Smith was a popular book and that Adam Smith appropriately uh, rebutted the mercantilists who thought that, uh, that that it's better for a government to earn a lot of gold by by uh, by selling a lot of goods abroad and that it should have uh, it should export a lot more than it imports adam smith made sensible points about the fact that uh, that that a, gov- a, a nation's wealth his book was of course the wealth of nations a nation's wealth is not uh, is not based on how much gold it has but just how productive it is and that uh, and and that uh, tariffs and and uh, and uh, controls over trade make no sense. The, the mercantilists were wrong about that and that you don't get rich by exporting more than you import. The, the, the exports are just what, what you use to purchase the imports. The imports are what make you better off, not the exports. That's producing for somebody else. All sensible points about free trade. But, but he never uh, bothers to point out something that so many have missed. Uh, I did a de- two debates on Adam Smith with others. I think Adam Smith deserves to be on the Mount Rushmore of great economists, but we really run into problems if we make too much of Adam Smith. Uh, we we free market people because Adam Smith's book is so filled with problems. Adam Smith favored the usury laws. He favored. He specifically discussed how important it is to keep, and he mentioned a particular price, keep a 5% limit on all loans. That's what he literally said. He was so out to lunch about that, that he literally thought that unless unless you put a 5% limit on all loans, then those people who, who will, are willing to pay 10% are going to get all the money are going to get all the all, all the loanable funds because if they're going to pay 10%. It never occurred to him that obviously those people who have to pay 10% are clearly very risky borrowers and that's why they're paying 10% in the first place. He never recognized that in a free market the interest rate is allocated according to perceived risk and that plenty of people are going to be able to borrow at 5%. I, yeah. I, just based off of what you said, yeah. it sounds to me I, it just sounds a little bit backwards. It sounds like he's saying that there's going to be more demand for money than there will be supply. So if I'm willing to borrow at 10%, he like to me, it sounds like he's looking at backwards. Oh, yeah. If I'm yeah, willing yeah. to borrow at 10%, I'm always going to outbid the person at 5%. And so therefore the cost of money will be too great. 
for however, anybody else. Yeah. yeah. However, there's no reason for money to be viewed in that way because there's no, like, there might be more actually rich people who are looking to make loans. And so you, the, the lender, the, the person borrowing actually has more leverage to go, yeah, I will borrow the money for you, but I can't make a good investment if I have to pay you 10%. The only way it makes sense for me to borrow this money for you is going to be at 4%. And if not, I'm not taking it. Yeah. So it just seems to me like he, uh, yeah, money yeah. like anything else, there should be a supply and demand to. Uh, so it just looks, it seems, I mean, I haven't read his work and it's weird of me to criticize well, 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 Adam Smith, well, it's but it weird. Rob, you're absolutely right. All I'm trying to say is that, it, again, I'm, I guess I'm shocking you in a way to say that, that this great economist, he's a great writer, he could be so clueless about this. And, 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 and indeed, it's a puzzle uh, because must be I, a good I think Christian. it's fun. What? He was probably working off Christian or other religious literature well, yeah, he was that he was just God. against. He was, he was a very. He did, I mean, by the way, he also he also thought that 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 that, uh, that court jesters and that uh, were people who engage in entertainment, just the court jester for the king or whatever. That, that those people were superfluous. They produced no value. He just he was a very, he just had all kinds of warped views, and he could be and he could endorse the usury laws. And now I want to make the point that that prior to his book being published, a guy named Richard Contillon, an Irishman via Paris, fortunate last name. Cantillon? Yeah. Why is that? <laughs> it's okay. Okay, Cantillon. Anyway, uh, he, he, wrote, he wrote a book in which he mocked the usury laws. He, he pointed out that entrepreneurs were borrowing at 10 and 12% and doing well. But as you indicate, uh, Rob, a, a, a loan is a negotiation. And clearly, there would be a bias in favor of lending to people who can pay you back, who have sound ways of investing. And so clearly, those people who have good ways of investing, established borrowers who can who can give you a reasonably safe rate of return, they will command a lower interest rate. But the entrepreneurs, there will be uh, you know the high yield bonds, there will be the junk bonds, there'll be the flyby nice. But there you will uh, you will of course lend to them at ten percent or twelve percent or fifteen percent. And so there are lots of people who have to pay a high rate of interest. There are payday loans. So again, it's not just that Adam Smith believe in the usual laws, it's that he had read Kantian. He, he mentions Kantian in his book, Wealth of Nations. He, he was so clueless that he didn't even read Kantian's point, how ridiculous the usual laws are. And you made a good point about that as well, about how ridiculous they are. Uh, uh, Adam Smith hated landowners. He thought they were all uh, uh, parasites. He, he, uh, he thought that profit was a deduction from revenue. He had no conception of profit being a rate of return on time, preference, and risk. There is so much that's left-wing that, that inspired uh, David Ricardo with left-wing ec economics that in turn inspired Karl Marx. So I'm only trying to point out that Carl, that Adam Smith is one of the baffling cases of of uh, of of, uh, of, of uh, great economists who did indeed write great things, but it was so clueless about so much. And it's not as though I'm being anachronist, anachronistic to point this out. The French economists at the time, Cantillon and Turgot, who wrote before him, knew about entrepreneurship. That's a French word that they used. He never used the word entrepreneur. He was out to lunch. 
about it. There's so much lacking in Adam Smith uh, and lacking in Adam Smith at a time when those insights were out there from the French economists. So I'm only trying to point out that Adam Smith, to some degree, was a retrogression in economic insight uh, because he didn't pick up on the insights of the French economists. He wrote some good things, but some terrible things. And Sowell completely ignores that. He goes with the conventional cliches about Adam Smith. And, but I will tell you, as I mentioned in my debates about Adam Smith, that the left wing notices these things in Adam Smith. They notice these things and they use those things against us. So we, uh, Peter Schiff was arguing uh, during uh, the, the Occupy Wall Street with a kid in the, in the mud who had a copy of Adam Smith's book. And Schiff said, uh, uh, yeah, he's the father of modern economics. And so the kid started to quote all the outrageous left-wing things that Smith had said. So we get hoisted our own, on our own petard if we don't recognize that Adam Smith has great things in his book, but also some terribly embarrassing things that were repudiated and, and proven invalid even when he wrote them. So we can't give him, we can't cut him some slack for saying that these insights were not as yet known. He you need an was, asterisk. I'm sorry? You need an asterisk. A, a big fat asterisk. <laughs> and and, and he, uh, several asterisks, Rod. Okay. And he leaves those things out. Okay, next. Next, okay. And, and uh, finally, with respect to the history of economic thought, because there are other problems. He speaks as though Keynes originated a theory that took business cycles into account. And I've already mentioned this. That, that Keynes was the first one who sort of really grappled with business cycles. And of course, uh, here, uh, again, I, I, I throw up my hands uh, because as great as Thomas Sowell is, I have to ask him, you mentioned Hayek in your book. Uh, I guess I can forgive you for not reading Mises, but aren't you, uh, aren't you cognizant of the fact that Hayek won a Nobel Prize for his writings on business cycles before uh, the, uh, uh, the, the book by Keynes came out, The General Theory, that, that, that clearly uh, the, the, the Austrian business cycle theory at the time that Hayek wrote uh, was brought to England and was widely accepted. You left that out altogether. You don't even discuss it. You don't mention it. You, you credit Keynes with having, having been the first one to deal with this, and yet, uh, and yet Hayek had dealt with it. And of course, Mises had dealt with it. And of course, others had. And so that's, that's, in a way, almost perhaps the most appalling thing in Sowell's book, because Sowell considered himself a student of Hayek's. And so that, too, is embarrassing. And of course, you can't read Sowell for an insight into business cycles. You can't read Sowell for an insight into whether government should control the money supply or not. And so that's my ninth one. And then finally, we mentioned the dismal science. This is an interesting story. Sowell, uh, to my surprise, uh, thinks that economics is called the dismal science because it reaches dismal conclusions. Although, as you point out, uh, Sowell certainly doesn't reach dismal conclusions about economics or the possibility of free market economics. Those are actually very upbeat conclusions. So, uh, so where did the word dismal come from? Or indeed, some people think it's called the dismal science because science is boring. It's a dismal um, because economics is boring because it's a dismal read. Well, in fact. Uh, uh, the, the term dismal science, as everyone knows, was coined by a British writer called Thomas Carlyle. Uh, so everybody knows that, but nobody bothers to note what Carlyle meant when he used the term dismal science. Carl, Thomas Carlyle was a raging bigot 
who believed that slavery was a good idea because black people were inferior. He, he wrote an essay called An Inquiry into the Nigger Question. That, 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 that essay, by the way, I had to use the N-word, as ugly as that is, that essay is now published as An Inquiry into the Negro Question, but he, but he used the N-word. He was a raging bigot. And at the time, free market ec economists like John Stuart Mill and others were arguing that the slaves should be freed. It was all about slavery. And Thomas... Carlyle called these free market economics economists dismal scientists, and he contrasted them with the practice of the gay science. He said they're dismal scientists because they think that all men are alike. That's what made them dismal. Oh, and, so you're and, saying he shouldn't be using this word because he's basically endorsing a racist. <laughs> okay, well, yes and no, Rob. Just a moment. Let, let, let me understand. Okay, he 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 shouldn't be. He should be. It, okay, he's misusing. It. He's just he's just wrong when he says that that the term dismal science was applied to economics because it meant that 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 that, that economics reaches dismal conclusions. He didn't know that 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 Thomas Carlyle, whom everybody acknowledges used the term, was a raging bigot who used the term to 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 mean that that the economists were dismal because they were against slavery. Now, but, 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 but and so I'm, again, this is, and, and he says, he wrote in this flowery language, oh, they are, they are not practitioners, practitioners of the gay science because we know that all men are different and indeed that blacks are inferior. They are practitioners of the dismal science. No, but that's that what, means if a leftist what, were to say, hey, we can't base our understanding or political decisions on economics because it's the dismal science, yeah. what they're saying is that the economists make the faulty assumption that all men are created equal yeah. and we can't make societal decisions or around that kind of a foundation. Yeah. Well, that's almost like ironic. And then, and then, and then ironically, Sowell, who is a black man descended from slaves, who wrote a lot about slavery, doesn't seem to know that, that, that that's the, where the term dismal science came from. That the, Thomas Sowell Carlyle used it a few times in his writings, and it went into the language. And again, in every case, he was talking about these free market economists who want slavery abolished and how, what a bad idea that is. And uh, I'll tell you something strange. If you pick up standard biographies of Thomas Carlyle, uh, they leave that out. I mean, they are so guided and dishonest. They, they celebrate Thomas Carlyle and they just cannot acknowledge that he was a raging bigot who used the term dismal science in that context. And he used the word, used the, the word, the N word in his essay. They can't even acknowledge that. So it's like something that's been buried by history and yet Yet uh, the sources on that are quite readily uh, uh, obtainable. And Thomas Sowell did so, not know that, even though he knows a lot about history. One more thing I think I'd like to add to your list, and yeah. we'll see if maybe after I mention it, you think it should exist on your list as well. Yeah. But there's one more place that I notice he kind of calls for government intervention, which is he takes a pretty um, favorable view to government debt. And that he's of the approach that as long as government's making, I'll put in quotes, good investments, um, we can basically, he was talking about how Wall Street laughed off. You know, you hear reportings about government debt and how bad it is. And he goes, it's really not a bit. He, basically, it sounds to me, he's of the mind that up until a certain level, government debt's not bad, doesn't crowd out investment, and can actually lead to, um, you know, favorable investments, better investments in the road or other things that can create economic prosperity. And I think you look yeah. at government debt and it's a recipe for inflation, overspending wars and all sorts of other problems. So I was just surprised to see that he was coming in with a 
So even though I, I don't know that he's defending the current level of government debt, he certainly was taking the approach of when you hear like that a lot of the reporting you see that seems to suggest that we can't sustain government debt is inaccurate. Oh, I see. Uh, well, I, I, I think I, I, I have to acknowledge your point to this extent. Uh, it, it, since Sowell, I guess, takes it for granted that the government should build and own the roads, uh, which is, of course, uh, something that really unfortunate that he believes that when he has a sense of history and he should uh, see the problems with government owning and running the roads. And so, uh, or, the, or the bridges, for example, or that, that kind of infrastructure. So if, uh, if government's going to build a road, then I guess, or, uh, or, or build a, uh, a bridge, then I guess it's possible to borrow because it's a capital good and you can make uh, revenue from that capital good. And so I guess he's granting government borrowing to that extent. Uh, and uh, uh, so it's not ridiculous on its face. Uh, and uh, I guess you're right that he acknowledges that a certain amount of government debt is okay. But for the most part, he's concerned about runaway government debt. And he talks about, isn't he, Rob? I mean, he's not totally bad on that. But but indeed, uh, you're basically right. Uh, to, but but I, I guess that you have to broaden the point and then ask, what is government borrowing for? And then if his answer is, well, it's borrowing for infrastructure, for things that really do enhance uh, uh, capital, these are capital goods, and that borrowing to produce a capital good is not such a bad thing because you can earn money and you can pay it back. Then uh, that's true as far as it goes. But but I, I'm 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 I may be misremembering where Sowell acknowledges government debt is okay. I think for the most part he's very concerned by runaway debt. Uh, All right. what that's worth. But, uh, but you know, you have a good point uh, to, as far as it goes, Rob. But that's pretty much my exhausted list. And I guess we brought it in at under two and a half hours, Rob. And so I'm uh, hoping we're going to be the resource for some people out there. Instead of reading basic, basic economics, they're going to get their education right here. Oh, come on, Rob. There's no excuse for not reading basic economics. I mean, that's a terrible thing to say. The point is that what they have to do is first read or listen to basic economics and then listen, first of all, listen to this show, then read basic economics then listen to the show again you know do it a sandwich it's, precisely it's the rob bernstein sandwich <laughs> with, with soul the meat in the middle and with you and i the bread and the matzah that there you uh, go well, gene thank you so much for yeah. uh, joining us this was very educational i hope the fans enjoyed as much as um i did and uh um before uh, you let before you go why don't you tell us what the next soho forum debate coming up is well, in mid-January, we have a debate on, on, on industrial policy and old canard. Orrin Cass, who is actually a darling of the Manhattan Institute, uh, Orrin Cass is a lawyer. He's written a major book on the importance of bringing about industrial policy in the U.S., more government involvement in the economy, because the economy is, after all, doing badly. And of course, you and I have already talked about ways in which the economy is doing badly because of government, uh, which by and large is why it's doing badly. But Orrin Cass believes that the economy is doing badly and we need an industrial policy for government uh, to do more intervention in the economy. And he's going to be opposed by Scott Lincecum. I can't apologize if I mispronounced that name. <laughs> he's from the Cato Institute. So that's going to be uh, January 17th, and we're already selling tickets to that. Uh, but the big announcement, I guess, is that uh, we are going to hopefully, so 